This is the Manga Mavericks Podcast from AllComic.com, episode 57. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I am Sid. And today, we are continuing our ongoing celebration of Shona John's 50th anniversary by rereading and reviewing the manga that perhaps best celebrates its legacy in so much that it is a manga about making shonen jump manga that's right we are reviewing sigumi oba and takashi obada's quote-unquote classic manga bakuman which itself is celebrating its 10th anniversary this year and we'll be joined by some very special guests sam leach from ANN and the One Piece Podcast, and of course, our very own Nick Rowe from all-comic.com. And we're very excited to talk about the series and the second half of the show with them. But first, as always, we've got some news to cover. Uh, yeah, so I guess we might as well just start off with our uh, monthly book scan list, uh, this one being uh, from this past July. I was going to say it's an interesting list, but I mean... Uh, it's 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 almost the same as the last one. But it is an interesting list because 14 spots on the top 20 this month are taken by manga. And half of them are My Hero Academia. 70% <laughs> are taken by manga, and 35% of those are My Hero Academia. <laughs> That's incredible. That's crazy. 14 of the top 20 graphic novels sold in North America are manga. That's insane. That's incredible. It's inignorable. Mm, but Sid, nobody cares about manga. Nobody likes I manga. Mean, <laughs> there's a reason why San Diego Comic Con has its own manga little ghetto, I guess. The, right? the, uh, the New York obviously, obviously, manga is not a huge part of the American comics industry. Look, obviously, there's reason not to care about it. Look, look, Sid. They wouldn't have taken. They wouldn't have taken off the uh, the New York Times bestselling uh, graphic novel manga list if they cared about manga. I mean, come on, Sid. To be fair, they also got rid of the graphic novels list in general. So I mean, that's yeah, that's New true York Times, too. Yeah. I guess change their tune on graphic novels in general. Whatever. But also, it's unignorable that uh, My Hero Academia is an insane hit, and San Diego Comic Con. If should they ever invite Kohei Koshi back there again, uh, yeah, please rethink uh, how much attention any My Hero Academia related event will receive, because clearly it is a big deal. I'm sure a lot of people will disagree with me when I say this, but it really does almost feel like. It almost feels like we have that, like, Naruto-level hit again, honestly. Mm -hmm. Almost. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's pro it's probably not as big as that, but I mean, it's it clearly has a lot of people's attention over here in North America, and a lot of people love it. And I guarantee you that if Toonami had, like, their normal, like, 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. time slot or whatever back that they used to have on Saturdays because, I mean, they're never going to get that after-school time back. I'm I'm sure that My Hero Academia would do so much better in those time well, slots. Well, you know, Colton, My Hero Academia is now leading Tanami at 10 p.m. Is it? Yeah. It starts off the block now. Oh, so, I okay. Mean, see, I didn't know that. It's doing fairly well for the block, I'd assume, if they're putting it at the front. Okay. Uh, I mean, <laughs> yeah, at My Hero Academia, its success is, you know, pretty resounding 
pretty mm-hmm. and ignorable. It's hard to quantify and compare to something like Naruto, which has been with us for over a decade in North America, That's even fair. longer. But it's the thing people are talking about and excited for right now. So, yeah. I, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is it, it feels like we haven't had something like this in a long time. I guess aside from something like Attack on Titan, I guess. I would compare it to that, definitely. I think it's supplanted Attack on Titan as the thing everyone is into. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. But we'll, we'll get back to My Hero Academia in a second, because at number two on the book scan list for July, uh, we have volume 14 of One Punch Man, uh, which I believe is the newest volume of One Punch Man to come out from Viz Media. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's good. One Punch Man still has a place on this list, and I'm sure will <laughs> like I'm I'm sh- m- maybe not to the point of my hero academia, but I could see when season two comes back next uh, next April. By the way, uh, that that news broke out. Also, I'm really excited for season two to come out next April. But mm-hmm. I'm sure when season two uh, does premiere, that like I'm sure it'll end up taking more than one spot on the book scan list. <laughs> At least a couple of times. Like, I could see that. Oh, yeah. Like, I see resurgence. Yeah. I think that's pretty likely at this point. But then at uh, number three, we have volume three of Dragon Ball Super, followed by uh, My Hero Academia Vigilantes volume one at number five. So I'm glad. This is how you know My Hero Academia is a big thing, because it's spin-offs are ranking here on the book scan list, and they're ranking as high as the top five. So, this is a franchise with legs. Yeah, and I guess just to get to My Hero Academia. So, Volume 1 came in at number 6, Volume 13 came in at number 7, Volume 2 came in at number 10, followed by Volume 12 at number 11, Volume 3 at number 13, uh, Volume 4 at number 16, and then Volume 11 at number 19. So, if you include the first volume of Vigilantes on the list, like My Hero Academia... As far as just manga goes for the book scan list this month, pretty much takes up more than half of the manga on this list. Yeah, 8 out of 14, 8 MHA volumes in the top 20 graphic novels of all time for July, so, you know, yeah, it's pretty big. Yeah, I mean, what else can you say? Like, that's 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 not something you see every day. Uh, this just in, people like My Hero Academia. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh surely news to me who uh, saw firsthand the excitement for it uh trying to get into the premiere of the movie <laughs> um but then at number eight uh like we mentioned earlier we have uh, attack of titan volume 25 and then at number 17 we have volume 39 of berserk nice to see berserk on the list uh, like we mentioned last episode it's pretty much dark horse's best-selling title yeah yeah I mean, yeah, the people love Berserk as well. Uh, at number 18, we have Tokyo Ghoul Re, Volume 5, as well as Tokyo Ghoul Volume 1 at number 20. Again, this just in, people still like Tokyo Ghoul as well, so. Mm-hmm. I'd say, yeah, very, very interesting list. I'm really interested in seeing how long My Hero Academia is going to go just dominating this chart in particular. I think for years and years to come. Yeah, I definitely want to keep track of how long how long that still stays in effect. Because, uh, like, I mean, like you said, it's probably gonna it's probably gonna be like that for at least probably for like the rest of the year, I'm sure. But yeah, like, yeah, it's it's pretty amazing, just like how much My Hero Academia has just just exploded in popularity, and I'm sure is making Viz a lot of money at this point. I, I think that's about it for the list, unless you have anything you want to add before we move on. 
Nope, I just think it's a very significant list because, again, 70% of it is manga. So, manga is doing extremely well right now, and that's always exciting to see. But now we will go and talk about some serialization news. And first up, we have some magazine news to cover. We have an update on the Tesca Mix magazine, a magazine that is being created to celebrate the work and legacy of Samu Tezuka. And we have confirmation that it is going to launch this October under the name Tezu Komi. It'll be celebrating the 90th anniversary of Osama Tezuka's birth. It's going to run monthly for 18 issues, so about a year and a half. And each issue of the magazine will have a team and republish a Tezuka work based on that team. There aren't many more details right now, but a website is going to launch in late August. And as we mentioned before, there is going to be a mix of Western and Eastern contributors to this magazine. And that's something that I am really looking forward to. Mm. Yeah, it's it's nice to see that um, it's nice to see that the uh, Tessica Mix magazine has come out of its uh, sort of hiatus that it went on a mm-hmm. couple months back. Um, it's nice to see that this project's uh, fully underway again. Yep, and I'm l- really excited to see what is going to come out of it. Like the original works from authors like Hiroyuki Rake and Ginko Tagami that will be contributing to this. Mm. So really, really excited. But alas, as we anticipate the debut of a new magazine, sadly, another magazine has been discontinued as Kodansha has stopped publishing the Nemesis manga magazine after its 41st issue earlier this month. They announced it within that issue itself, so it was very sudden. But Nemesis ran such manga as Dai Wurgler from Hiroaki Samura and Masaki Nakayama's PTSD Radio, as well as other series like Yasushi Baba's Galaxium in the past. As for the fate of the series running in the magazine, fear not because they will continue. D. Wurgler will move to Monthly Shonen Series magazine, and PTSD Radio, Tokyo Densetsu, Kyo Aku Gakuen, Elizabeth, Undead Girl Murder Farce, and Monster Banquet will move to Granja's web manga service Comic Days. So those series will still be continued. But we have to talk about more conclusions because there are several series that will be ending very soon. It has just been announced that Fruits Basket Another, the sequel to Fruits Basket, will end in its next chapter. However, the artist Natsuki Takaya mentioned that it is only tentatively the final chapter, but she would still like to draw one-shots for the series. Hmm. The manga is serialized irregularly, so there is no date for when the final chapter will run, but... It's been running on Manga Park, so it'll probably come out there. And yeah, uh, I'm very interested in seeing how this uh, series will wrap up. I need to revisit Fruits Basket, the original. But I remember I tried to read Fruits Basket another when it was first coming out, and I did not find it very interesting and got very bored of it. But I was recently listening to Shoujo and Tell's manga preview guide review of it, and they, and, like, Ashley had a very similar opinion, it seemed, of, like, 
the early chapters when she was reading at Scout Nation, but said that reading in the graphic novel, like it was more interesting and enjoyable. So I definitely will give the sequel a try once I have finished rereading uh, Fruits Basket proper at some point. Hmm. There you go. But another series that I have had uh, experience with that is ending serialization pretty soon is Alice and Murderland from Kaori Yuki. Uh, Alice and Murderland will end in the October issue of Kodansha's Shonen Magazine Edge on September 15th. Basically what Alice and Murderland is, it's like uh, sort of a reimagining of like all these fairy tale characters as like one family that is like all out to kill each other basically so like uh, the main character is like a gun-toting alice basically that sounds amazing yeah it's a lot of fun to read i only read the first volume of it but you know it's it's kind of good it's a little trashy in a way but it's it's good fun so i I definitely hope to continue with it and uh the manga will end with the 11th volume so it's not too long to read so yeah looking uh, forward to seeing how that one will conclude too i was gonna say sometimes trash can be fun Oh yeah, oftentimes trash is fun. I mean, it's a good kind of like it's it's the like uh, campy trash, you know. I don't know if it's campy. It's it's like metal melodramatic trash, but <laughs> you know, I it's not bad. It's like I mean that it's, in, it's like, entertaining. It's, it's, it's indulgent. It's indulgent in its violence and like the melodrama. That's probably more specific to to what I am trying to get. Across. I, I was gonna say that <laughs> but, that, uh, that sounds that sounds like something I would enjoy reading actually. Oh yeah, uh, but. Now we're getting to one of the big ones uh, that's been confirmed to be ending soon. Although this one, we luckily will not have a little more time with. Because The Seven Deadly Sins is planned to end in about a year. This is the plan of Nakaba Suzuki, the mangaka. He, he said recently in an interview with Kawa's Da Vinci magazine that he's planning on concluding Seven Deadly Sins in about a year after about 40 volumes worth of story. Uh, he noted he had the ending plan since the beginning of the magazine, uh, of the manga, and he plans to give it an ending worthy of the shonen magazine. We knew before that Suzuki had envisioned the series as having three arcs, each about 100 chapters each. And the series is approaching its 300 chapter. However, where it is now in the story, I doubt it will end exactly on chapter 300. But ending in about a year's worth of chapters does feel about right, considering this arc did have a certain element of finality to it. So, Hmm. yes, I am not surprised by this announcement, but... It'll definitely be interesting to see how the series will end and knowing that it is going to be ending within a year, like what directions it will take and how things will wrap up. So hmm. I'm looking forward to continuing to read the series and seeing like how it reaches this conclusion. But now we have a really big one to talk about that is ending soon, that is ending next month. And Colton, uh, you should take this one away because it's very near and dear to you. It, yeah, um, no kidding. So um, after... What feels, I mean, it has been years, years and years of wondering when this thing is going to end and uh, having been trolled at least once, Hideaki Sirachi's Gintama is finally going to be ending in five chapters. And obviously at the time of this recording, or I guess at the, um, whenever this episode is released, by the time this episode's released. So it's ending in five chapters um, and this was announced in uh, issue... 38 of Shonen Jump. So within the five chapters that are ending, that's including the chapter that ran in issue 38. So assuming that 
the manga itself doesn't take any kind of like breaks or anything. Uh, Gintama will be ish, uh, ending in issue 42, which I believe should have a street date of September 17th. So definitely by the end of September, Gintama will have ended. And I have very mixed feelings on on it ending um, at the moment, just because I... Because, I, you know, I, this, could, this could be a whole other thing, and I don't want to, like, spend too much time on this. But, I mean, uh, I've, I've had my ups and downs with the past, I want to say, two or three years worth of Gintama manga. Not that I, like, dislike it or anything. I've really enjoyed it. Um, I mean, looking back on Silver Soul, um, I thought it was fine, but in retrospect, this seems a little bloated, even though... Uh, there are definitely a lot of moments and a lot of uh, parts of that arc in particular that I still really enjoy. I think my, uh, I guess my opinion of it is sort of, um, has sort of uh, wavered a bit just because uh, there was this expectation of it being the final arc. But spoiler alert, we have gotten a few epilogue chapters, you know, since then that could kind of serve as sort of the actual final arc in a way. I mean, again, it's more of an epilogue, but... You know, still, we're, we've just been kind of in this space lately where it's like uh, a lot of people, everybody just kind of assumed, rightly so, that Silver Soul was supposed to be the ending. And now we get all this epilogue that seemed like it was setting up an entirely new arc because there's still things that, you know, Sirachi kind of has to wrap up here and there, uh, which I appreciate he's been taking the time to do so. But now we're just kind of at a point where, you know, some people are kind of down on this news because... You know, sort of myself included, I'm just kind of like, well, without giving too much away about, you know, what's happening in the manga right now, it's just kind of in this place where I'm not really sure. Like, I think he could wrap it up. I just don't know. I have my doubts that it'll be that it'll be a satisfying ending. But I mean, I could also be wrong. Like, uh, Gintama isn't perfect. It has its uh, it, like as much as I love it, it has its ups and downs. But I think. I think the ending will be okay, but I mean, I've, I'm already seeing people who are, like, putting out these wild claims that it's being canceled or whatever. The same thing that happened with Bleach, where it's <laughs> like, just because they don't like the ending, it totally means that it got canceled and that it's being rushed out the door. Like, and I just, I don't like that mentality whatsoever. Even if I have my doubts that I will like the ending, I still think that, I mean, obviously, it's ending on Sirachi's terms, and I, I'm appreciative of that. I don't know. Like, it's really going to depend on how these next five chapters, I guess, hold out. Um, but I'm also already seeing people being like, "Oh, well, it could get a, it could get a sequel in Jump Giga or in Jump Next or Jump Plus or whatever." I'm just like, I don't know about that. I don't know. Sid, have you been keeping up with Gintama at all? Or are you caught up? I'm not caught up. I last read a long time ago, like around 620 or something. So mm, okay. it was, it's been over a year and I was, I've been waiting for it to end. And then I was going to like read it through to the ending. I honestly, that's, I don't blame you for that. That's totally fair because there are certain parts of silver soul where I was just kind of like, we're still on this, <laughs> <laughs> which thankfully, you know, the anime covers certain material a little yeah. faster, which is good. But, and the anime, it's probably going to continue its current runs through to the ending at this rate. Probably, I would yeah. imagine, like, if it doesn't end by the end of September, I have no frame of reference for, like, how much material it's adapting per episode. But if it doesn't end by the end of September, I, I'd imagine that it's too core and it's going to end at the end of December. 
I was gonna say, yeah, as soon as they finish up Silver Soul, like, I could see the anime getting at least another 12 episodes to finish it up, and then we're done. Mm. But yeah, I don't know. Um, for, I, I haven't read the latest chapter, but from what I've been hearing, it doesn't seem like it's made much progress towards the end. I don't know. I'm not really sure how I feel about it. I'm I'm gonna wait and see how things turn out. I'm trying not to be as pessimistic as some other people I've seen are being, but like... I, I have my doubts, but I, I still believe that Sirachi will pull off some kind of, like, a decent ending, at least. Like, I don't think I'm going to hate it. I mean, if anything, I'm probably going to start sobbing once I read the final chapter. Like, I'm not I'm not looking forward to Gintama ending. Because after, after all this time of being tricked into thinking it's going to end multiple times, especially through the anime, the show lies to you constantly. Like, that's something you need to be warned about going in, anyone listening who hasn't, like, watched or read any Gintama at all, this show will play with your emotions. And sometimes it's not fun. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. I mean, as I like, I'm a huge fan of Gintama, as you can tell. Like, I have my own podcast, though it's on hiatus. Like, you know, I'm, Gintama's, like, pr probably my favorite series of all time. I think I think I can safely say that. Like, it for me, it's not just, like, oh, it's my favorite anime. Like, it's it's, like, my favorite thing. Like, I love it so much, and... You know, no matter how I how I felt about the past like two years worth of material, like I'm still gonna be sad to see it go. Mm, yeah. Um, but I think that's all I really have to say about that. Like, I, I could I could go on for another hour about this, which I don't think <laughs> I should. But yeah, um, it is confirmed to be ending, and I'm just gonna wait and see what happens. And I'm tears are guaranteed. Like I'm sh I like I think that's I think that's safe to say for sure. But. uh Anyway, um, I think that's about it for all of the serialization news then. And uh, I think we can move on to some licensing news, uh, which we are going to start off with uh, some Dark Horse stuff. Because uh, Dark Horse announced at, uh, at their panel at Otakon uh, this past, what was that, last week? I think it was last week. Mm -hmm. uh, they announced a new license. They announced that they had licensed uh, Emanon from uh, Shinji Kaijo. And uh, Kenji Suru, uh, Suruta, uh, in which uh, the first volume of that, entitled Memories of Emanon, uh, will be released uh, this uh, next year in May uh, in 2019. And uh, will be translated by Dana Lewis, who is also credited with translating uh, The Wandering Island. And as far as what Emanon is about, um, it seems like... It seems like every volume of Emanon is sort of its own, like, either its own story or is like a collection of sort, short stories involving this, uh, involving the character named Emanon, which apparently is no name spelled backwards. And, um, Emanon in particular is this mysterious girl who holds three billion years worth of memories, dating from when life began on Earth until, until this very moment, of which, is a really interesting concept. It almost sounds like, um, it sounds like something out of To Your Eternity, almost. Yeah. But that's a really interesting premise for a series. I, I would not mind checking this out. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's got an intriguing premise, and generally the stuff that Dark Horse picks up are usually kind of cream of the crop kind of things. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's definitely got to be a reason for them to eye, eye this title, and I'm looking forward to seeing it, mm -hmm. what it's all about. All right, and then uh, moving on to some Viz stuff. Uh, so, you know, in case you didn't know, uh, Viz Media has been re-releasing Full Metal Alchemist through the Full Metal Editions, which is basically uh, their version of the Kanzenban release of Full Metal Alchemist. 
uh, hardcover, glossy paper, color pages, the whole, the, like the whole nine yards, which I still need to pick up the first volume of that because uh, I, I would love to. I don't actually own any of the Full Metal Alchemist manga, so this is the perfect time for me to start picking it up because from what I've been seeing of people, you know, posting online and everything, like, and, you know, I've, I've also seen it in stores too, like, it is such a nice, high quality release and, like, I want to own it so bad. But uh, Viz announced... Uh, pretty recently that because uh, I guess um, I guess apparently the Omake pages and like some of the like four panel comics aren't like included in the in the Full Metal edition. I think they are, but this is like a separate like release that compiles all the Omakes. Mm, okay, as well. But yeah, so uh, Viz has announced that they have licensed uh, the Full Metal Alchemist Complete Four Panel Comics Collection, uh, which will be coming out this spring, twenty nineteen. And yeah, like we mentioned, it's like it's pretty self-explanatory. It's just a it's it's a collection of I want to assume some of the omake and just uh, just some four-panel comics featuring all your favorite characters from Full Metal Alchemist in general. And honestly, from from what I remember of the omake stuff in Full Metal Alchemist, like I see people like post certain comics and stuff all the time, and honestly, they're pretty hilarious, and I love them. <laughs> Yeah, they're a lot of fun. I remember reading them, but, you know, when I was reading Full Metal Alchemist, they were enjoyable. Waylord, what do you think of the Amakes in the Full Metal Alchemist manga? Uh, they were funny. <laughs> what was your favorite one? I don't remember them that much. Okay, leave the room. I think you could just sneak in here and turn on the light when you leave. Wait, what? Turn on the light when you leave. Why, why do you have the light on? I don't know. Just, just turn it on and leave. Okay, it's on now. You're ruining the podcast, Milo! <laughs> leave! Shut up. Wait, wait. I have something. Well, anyway. Oh, that V-Lord always sneaking in. Yeah, leaving his switch up in the room. <laughs> doesn't, he have his, doesn't he have his own podcast to record? Yeah, what happened to that, V-Lord? What's happening with Drowning Manga? You released an episode last week. Yeah, but you're four episodes behind. There'll be a new episode out on Sunday, I swear. Okay. (sighs) Oh, boy. Um, Bye, (laughs) V-Lord. Well, special guest V-Lord, everybody. (laughs) Uh, But uh, anyway, so, Sid, we have some some really big licensing news to talk about if you want to... Uh, start talking about that real quick. Oh yeah, we have a really big shakeup, a really big news to talk about because it's not every day that a new manga publishing company launches, but that's what's happened recently. Ed Chavez, former vertical marketing director and vice president of Faku, alongside the president of Faku and founder Jacob Grady, have launched a new manga publishing company, Denpa. And they have some exciting new licenses that they're planning to debut starting this fall, including, perhaps biggest of all, at least the one that I know the most people are excited about, Nobu Yuki Fukumoto's Gambling Apocalypse Kaiji. Ooh, wow. Which will be released in six omnibus volumes with 500 plus pages, each beginning in the first quarter of 2019. 
Den Plus releases will be available on digital. They'll have their own digital platform and all their releases will be in print. Their other releases include Shuzo Oshimi's Inside Mari, which has previously been available on Crunchyroll's manga service, but now will finally be available in graphic novel form. Their release will have new translations and new lettering and design, and that will debut in the fourth quarter of 2018. They also will debut Pez by Hiroyuki Asada of Letter B, uh, and this is a prequel to Letter B, and uh, it's going to be uh, launched in the fourth quarter of 2018 as well. We've also got another one-volume work, An Invitation from a Crab by Panpanya, which is a collection of short stories by Panpanya, some of which are self-published and some of which were serialized in Hakushinja's Rakugen anthology. And we've also got Maiden Railways from Azumiko Nakamura, which is another collection of short stories that take place around trains. And we've got Future Log by Ranje Murata, which uh, is a kind of an art book. Uh, from the character designer of Last Exile, Blue Sub, Number 6, and Shangri-La. So, a lot of big titles and big names associated with their new releases. It's really exciting stuff. I'm really excited about their new company. Uh, they're making, you know, a big statement by licensing Kaiji and releasing that. So, will that be a gamble that pays off for them? Let's hope so. Maybe, I hope they'll have a... Well, I don't know how much luck Kaiji has in his series. But uh, hopefully they have the best of luck. Because I'm definitely wishing it for them. I was going to say, Kaiji's been running for a while. I think it's been running since, like, 1996. It's kind of sort of like JoJo, where, like, the series is, like, divided into, like, different parts. So, yeah. like, so like you know, season one of the anime covers part one of the manga and so on and so forth. But, yeah, that's that's amazing. I can't believe Kaiji's been picked up. Like, I'm so going to buy that. Because, man, Kaiji is really good, and everybody needs to see it at least once in their life. Admittedly, I haven't seen season two of the anime yet, but I need to get back on that at some point. And, Sid, we need to talk about Kaiji on the show at some point, because you haven't you haven't seen any of Kaiji or read it. I have not, so I would love to talk about the manga. In general, I would love if we could somehow arrange a review of Denpa's launch titles in general, and so maybe we could arrange that. Uh, that'd be something I'm interested in. Mm. I didn't know Denpa was going to have its own digital platform. That's really interesting, actually. Mm-hmm. I wasn't aware of that, but... It makes sense since uh, Faku has their own digital platform, so they would have experience with setting that up. That makes sense, yeah. Yeah, as far as everything else goes, I mean, um, I've never read Inside Mari, um, which is a shame because I have access to Crunchyroll manga, and I, 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 I'm so terrible at making my way to a lot of those titles when I just have them all in front of me. Um, but it, that seemed like a really interesting series. I've heard really good things about that. I did not know Pez was from the same person that created uh, Tagami Bachi. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that's a series I've been needing to check out. I need to check out that person's works in general. Invitation from a Crab seems really interesting, along with uh, Maiden Railways. Just in general, I think Denpa so far has has really has done a really good job with uh, with their starting uh lineup of licenses so far and i'm like i really want them to do well enough to, to see them not just license more kaiji but i would love to see what else they pick up indeed 
I'm definitely looking forward to seeing what else they'll pick up. And this is a very strong set of launch titles that cover a wide variety of genres and feature both like uh, a lot of great names, but some works from creators that do not get released as much in the States, like Azumiku Nakamura. I know that has a lot of people excited that finally some of her work is coming out over here. Mm -hmm. So lots to look forward to. Mm -hmm. But yeah. Only time will tell, and we'll we'll see how that goes. Hopefully, uh, I ho- hopefully everything goes well with Dempa. I really want them to succeed. I really want more kaiji. Um, <laughs> but um, mm-hmm. but yeah, uh, that's about it for uh, serialization news. Uh, we'll move on to uh, some it's a, to a, a bit of industry stuff. So uh, the Harvey Awards uh, has recently uh, created a new a new category uh, amongst our category of awards. And so, so I, I think we've talked about this on the show before. So they originally had a category called Best American Edition of Foreign Material, and uh, that is no longer a category now. Uh, but basically, they've just done away with that and have added a Best Manga category. And within that category are some of their nominees include uh, My Brother's Husband from Gagoro. Tagame, My Hero Academia from Kohei Horikoshi, uh, My Lesbian Experience with Loneliness from Kabi Nagata, Tokyo Ghoul from Sui Ishida, and the manga adaptation of Your Name, uh, the uh, much-beloved Makoto Shinkai movie, uh, which I think are really, um, I think a really strong list of candidates for this award. I mean, uh, you know, I, I haven't read much Tokyo Ghoul, and I haven't really read Your Name, but at least as far as, like, the first three uh titles go like i wish all of them would win because they're all so good <laughs> indeed they're definitely in touch with what are the big and most critically beloved titles in on the scene right now so they picked some good stuff your name i guess stands out because i don't know if the manga adaptation of that is necessarily as critically beloved but it does show that they're paying attention to what is popular what is talked about mm-hmm. so Kudos for them. This is like a good uh, selection for the messed up manga category. Yeah, so uh, can't wait to see how that goes. But uh, uh, Sid, I guess we have some um, some other miscellaneous things. This one being some anime news, possibly some anime news if you want to talk about that. What's nice about this set of miscellaneous news that we have to talk about is that they're also all Shonen Jump related, which hmm, fits in line with the team of this podcast very well. Whoa, what? At least our, our discussion topic later. But yes, uh, we have a new anime domain registered and the series that it has been registered for is Your Name because there has been a domain name registered for BokuBen.com and a Twitter account open for at Bokuben-Anime. And of course, that is the, you know, shortened form of uh, Bokutachi wa Benkyo ga Dekinai, which is the Japanese name for the series called We Never Learn in Weekly Shonen Jump. That has uh, been running in the Miss Media Shonen Jump as well since its debut. So yeah, it looks like this series is finally getting an anime and I'm looking forward to that because I enjoy We Never Learn quite a bit and I'm looking forward to seeing its stories animated. Yeah, I guess this means I should finally get to We Never Learn and talk about it on the podcast next year. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure when the anime comes out, we will dedicate an episode to it or well the our schedule for next year is still up in the air but definitely i would like to talk about the series uh at some point and yeah i would assume also uh, here's my uh prediction is that the we never learn anime will come out next summer 
because what I've noticed is that Jump is priming an adaptation of one of their works to come out each season. So we've got Promise Neverland in the winter, and we've got Kimetsu no Yaiba coming out in spring. So We Never Learn coming out in the summer would fall into line with that. And then I would also imagine that it won't be too long before we get an announced for Dr. Stone, and I wouldn't be surprised if we get that next fall. That's my little prediction there. Mm. Yeah, I, I guess it's about time because I honestly just kind of assumed like if we if we were, if we were to get a Doctor Stone anime, I feel like we'll probably get an announcement for one next year. But I feel like it probably like if we get an announcement for one next year, it probably won't premiere until the year after. That's what I think well, will happen. Well, Doctor but... Stone and We Never Learn started around the same time, and I That's wouldn't be surprised too. since both of them are extremely popular and successful in about equal measure. I would say Doctor Stone is even more popular, even so. I, I wouldn't be surprised. Like if We Never Learn is getting an anime pretty soon, I wouldn't be surprised if we we're going to see Doctor Stone pop up as well uh, as early as next fall, but. You know, that's just my prediction. Mm, yeah, I guess I guess we'll just have to be on the lookout for some new uh, domain names and, and Twitter accounts for Dr. Stone. Mm -hmm. But moving on, we've got a very interesting like look at demographics for a series to see like how popular it is and with what types of people. And that's for JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, because as part of uh, the JoJo ex ex exhibition Ripples of Adventure, an exhibition celebrating the 30th anniversary of JoJo's, uh, there was a fan survey to reveal the ultimate JoJo fan image. And uh, the JoJo Sapiens Project, it was called, and it revealed its results. And uh, the ultimate JoJo fan, uh, an image of that was revealed. And it's like, I don't know how to describe it, but, you know, it kind of looks like Jolene, on this, you know, which uh, is not so much a surprise. And then Araki created his own stand based on the image as well, which uh, is a pretty fashionable looking dude he's got like four leggings and a scarf and with like feathers out of it kind of like a pharaoh mask kind of thing oh man but basically the main part that was interesting to me is that uh there was a survey that more than seven thousand people and uh responded to that had questions in the following categories body love soul favorite mind fetishism money speed pass and jojo and uh for some questions the website posted a selected uh selection of type responses from fans including some responses in english and so here's where the demographics come in uh the survey results according to them the average jojo fan is 24.9 years old so basically the average of the fan is 25 years old yeah. and uh their height is 165 centimeters or about five feet and five inches tall hmm. uh among the respondents with the 0.2% were male and 48.3% were female, so pretty close. And uh, 1.5 identified as other. Uh, the franchise's fans have dated an average of 2.9 people each, but only 33.6 currently have a significant other, which, mm. you know, for a person in their mid-20s is not unusual. Yeah. And uh, respondents' favorite food was ramen. Their favorite non-Iraqi manga is One Piece. Their favorite color is blue. 44.9% of them are cat people rather than dog people. <laughs> uh, they also share Rocky's apparent dislike of dogs. Uh, respondents' <laughs> number one fear was their fellow humans. Uh, that's a very JoJo's fear. Uh, and followed by Ghost and Dad. <laughs> utter very JoJo's fears. And the thing they said they want to do more than anything before they die is travel the world. Which, yeah. Uh, pretty, uh, it's kind of a JoJo's dream, too. Yeah, they, they want to have their own Stardust Crusade. <laughs> Exactly. And that brings us to, like, 
what were fans' most popular arcs. And uh, 19.1% of fans listed the fifth part of JoJo's Golden Wind as their favorite. Yeah. Diamond is Unbreakable ranked second with 17.5% of votes. Stardust Crusaders came in third with 17.3% of votes. So that's uh, pretty telling. You know, there's always been kind of this misconception that part five was not as popular as other parts. But in fact, it is apparently one of the most popular parts, if not the most popular. And so, yeah, hmm. it's good to kind of have that validation because some people throw shade at part five. But uh, no, it's actually pretty popular. And uh, yeah, and hmm. uh, respondents top three favorite stands were Star Platinum, Killer Queen and Crazy Diamond. And their favorite fight was the battle between Jotaro and Dio in Stardust Crusaders. And the character highest star they want to try most is Jolene Kujos. Hmm. I'm not, I'm not entirely surprised by some of those results. I mean, I've pretty much known that Part 5 was more popular than it seems since we had previously podcast about JoJo before, honestly. So mm. uh, up until then, yeah, I was really under the impression that, like, not a, like, that not a lot of people liked Part 5. Just because I think over here... Um, and I'm sure it has something to do with, you know, the really terrible scans that most people read yeah. online. The original scanlation for it was not very good. Yeah. So I think because of that, I had seen people who were like very mixed on part five. Either some people really loved it or like other people just hated it. Like there was no like in between. But I'm I'm sure when when the part five anime premieres this October, like that's that's going to change. Like, I'm sure, like, mostly everybody's going to pretty much fall in line and just love Part 5. I'm really interested as someone who hasn't read or watched any of Part 5, so I'm really interested in seeing what my opinion of Part 5 is going to be compared to the other four parts. Yeah, I mean, I think that the reaction to the Part 5 anime will be very positive. Uh, yeah. I know people are already extremely excited for it. And I've also noticed that a lot of the shade criticism of Part 5, there is legitimate criticism of, like, the antagonist of Part 5 in yeah. particular. Uh, not only do people get confused about his power, how his powers work, they just don't find him a very compelling antagonist in general. Mm -hmm. But there's also an element of, like, a boys' club mentality. Like, uh, I feel like some... Some fans felt that this part was more popular with female fans, and so those people, you know, put part five down because of that, which was incredibly unfair. So I think that, uh, you know, we'll see that uh, idea that part five is somehow not as good as the previous rights be proven untrue when the anime hits and blows everyone away yet again. I'm really interested in seeing, um, in particular, like, and this is some kind of related, but I I'm really interested in seeing what the reaction to, like, Part 6 is going to be when that's animated. I think Part 6 is going to do extremely well, because the content of Part 6 is has hold, held up extremely well. Uh, I mean, it was, and it, it deals with really mature and difficult teams that, you know... Uh, I don't even I don't want to spoil some of the stuff that happens in Part 6 or some of the stuff that characters deal with but like backstory of Enrico Pucci the main antagonist in particular and what motivates him is just so incredibly powerful and like thought-provoking as is like and its relationship with Dio is so fascinating but in general it also had both like incredibly awesome female protagonists like Jolene is my favorite Jojo just in, out of all the Jojos see I I've, I see people who like really don't like part six like it's so weird don't see a lot i think a lot of people have, who have negative feelings of part six 
Um, again, I think there's this boys club mentality that uh, people have uh, towards part five as well that colors their perception. But another thing that I think, you know, people have misgivings about is that, that, you know, the ending of part six, it is pretty difficult to accept in in, in some way. Like it is kind mm-hmm. of a, it is very bittersweet. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of people might feel upset by that. But, you know, I, I think at this point, it, that is not a secret to a lot of people how part six ends and what ramifications that has for everything afterwards. So. Mm. Yeah. I don't think that's an issue. I think the story content of part six is just so good though. I, I truly believe it is like, uh, uh, it is the best written of the parts that was ran run Shonen Jump. Uh, it's mm. my favorite, of course. Like I would say that maybe part seven is even more well put together in terms of how Iraqi explore his themes and, the art quality and all that stuff so like on a technical level maybe i would say steel bar one is even better but like i think stone ocean just has so much going for it that i i imagine when the anime comes out it will it will garner a lot of discussion like not just like fan enthusiasm of it like as has been from the previous parts but like critical discussion as well like people will be talking about some of the ideas that are discussed in that series because mm. there's like actual an actual un- ideological kind of conflict that is motivating like uh, an antagonist in that and that like you know kind of gets into the core of what JoJo's is about as well. So it's like very culminative of like what the series had kind of been building towards. So uh, I have a lot of love to keep on part six, and uh, yeah, I, I think I am really excited for that gets an anime in particular. But mm. uh, right now, I'm really looking forward to part five because there's just a lot of that I want. I'm really excited to revisit too. Oh man, I can't wait for JoJo's for, uh, JoJo Fridays to come back. That's gonna be so amazing. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, just revisiting JoJo's like some of the anime on Twitch, uh, and as well as catching like the final set of episodes of stardust on tanami and now with diamond is also premiering on tanami like uh yeah i'm I'm super excited about jojo's again you know again the part five premiere i saw it at ax it was so good got me so excited so yeah i'm looking forward to part five i mean like i've probably i've talked about before how i i don't really keep up with tanami much anymore but man i have been jonesing to just rewatch all of part four because at, at this point so far I, it's probably the part I like the most. I kind of go back and forth between that and part one. Again, I have this, I have this weird, like, relationship with part one where I know it's not perfect and I know it's probably, the writing may be kind of dated, but I mean, I still love it and I think it still has a lot to offer as the foundation mm-hmm. of JoJo, but yeah, I, I really can't wait to rewatch part four. Like, I'm definitely going to be watching that every week while it's on Toonami. Yeah, I mean, so, hey, you yeah. can also tune into the Twitch stream that Riz is doing. I think part four will be on there from the 21st to 25th. So mm. you can tap into that, too. Yeah, I, I should probably get on that. But um, I think uh, we can just move on to uh, our last two bits of news here. So the the next My Hero Academia character popularity poll is underway. And, uh, you know, if you want a chance to vote for your favorite character, um, Viz is giving you the option to do that because they are running their own character popularity poll, uh, which I'm sure we will leave in the um, we will leave a link to that in the description for the episode. Mm hmm. And so, yep, I've already voted for my favorite character. Um, I'm struggling. Who'd you vote for? I, I, I'm actually really struggling to remember. I'm pretty sure I voted for Midoriya just because um, 
you know, I'm I'm not saying I don't understand why, you know, Bakugo got first place in the last poll, but like, I want to see my boy pull through. I want to see him get number one. Uh, who, who did you vote for, Sid? I voted for All Might because, yeah. you know, I've been revisiting season one as it's aired on Denami, and I've also just been thinking about All Might's character a lot in general. Yeah. Lately, from both the manga and just you know, other things, but as it's crossed my mind. And I, I feel like All Might's character is just very compelling and like how his role in the story has evolved. I really has, have enjoyed it. So, you know, I kind of just, you know, thought about it. It was like, who is the character I'm feeling like most emotional about right now? And I, I went with All Might because I love a lot of the characters in MHA. Mm-hmm. So I, I played it by ear with this time. I know in the past I voted for different characters but right now i'm feeling in that all might mood yeah but uh i could i would have voted for gang orca but i don't know i felt that would be throwing away my vote but i will be very impressed if uh annalisa and weekly manga recaps pushing of it of him will uh, get him a spot in the u.s results (laughs) he's gonna have he's gonna have number two or three in the u.s poll results (laughs) Who knows? I mean, Kazuki got number two in the Dr. Stone poll. That still blows you know? my mind, honestly. I can't believe uh, so, that happened. Yeah, I mean, you know, maybe the listenership of the Shonen Jump podcast and Weekly Manga Recap holds sway on these survey rankings. You know, their their listeners will maybe vote uh, based on what the hosts say. Mm. So, who knows? Yeah. And who you- knows? I'm very curious. I, I, I kind of do want to see if Gang Ro- Orca ranks in the top ten. Because we'll probably only know the results of the top ten. So, I'm, I'm really really interested in seeing uh if he makes it mm, yeah uh we'll definitely be talking about uh the results of the poll on the show when those come out so uh you could look forward to that but uh our very last piece of news just just some more uh jump force stuff here uh so it's been announced recently uh some new characters are coming to jump force uh so we have some hunter hunter characters joining the fray we have both gone and hisoka uh coming in as playable characters which is uh i think is pretty cool it's nice to see uh hunter hunter get some love especially hisoka like like if i get the chance to play jump force like i'm definitely going to be trying out hisoka um i don't yeah I, I don't think he's been playable in, in these other jump games at all, at least not that I can remember. I don't know about the DS games, but he was only an assist in Victory Versus. I was going to say, um, as, at least as far as like jump ultimate stars go, I, I don't think he's a playable character in that. I think he's an assist, though. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, no, I think I think this may be the first time he's been an actual playable character in, in the Shonen Jump fighting games. So that's, so that's really cool. Yeah. I appreciate that. Um, and Gon will have his adult transformation from the Kira Ant arc. So that's also exciting. I don't believe that was in uh J stars. So yeah, that's cool, man. Like I actually just recently rewatched those episodes with a friend of mine. Um, and Oh boy, that, those may be some of my favorite episodes of Hunter Hunter. Those are, those are some amazing episodes. But also we have Sanji and Blackbeard uh coming in as playable characters as well. It's it's nice to see um nice to see Sanji getting some time to shine here as well as Blackbeard. Yeah, the year of Sanji continues yet again. <laughs> in general, I hope when it comes to One Piece there's a like we have more stra- like I mean obviously so far it's looking better than like, you know, J stars because that was the that was one of the few things I really didn't like about J stars as far as like the character roster was just you know the like uh, the the One Piece characters like you could tell that like they really just kind of chose like whoever were like just the really popular characters and I mean you know it was kind of disappointing that none of the other Straw Hats got to join the roster 
But I mean, I kind of understand why that was the case. But I like so far that we're getting, we're at least getting the three stronger of the Straw Hats this time. Well, yeah. I mean, as far as popular characters go, though, Luffy, Zoro, and Saji are the top three most popular characters in One Piece consistently across all the popularity polls. I mean, so, like, I mean, yeah. This is kind of like a return to form here. Like, what's interesting about the J-Star selection of One Piece is that they were clearly going for, like, who are the who are key characters in, like, the Whitebeard War in the Marineford arc? So they chose characters out of there, and which was, you know, was a little strange because, like, it was to, at the expense of Straw Hats, but it did allow for, I guess, a little variety in, like, the kinds of characters they chose. But, like, you know, here we've got some, you know, the most popular Straw Hats, and then we've got, like, Blackbeard, who is, like, primed as the series antagonist at this point. So it makes a lot of sense. See, and I, I could be wrong about this, but I, I thought um, I thought during J-Stars' like, campaign, I thought there was, um, I thought people in Japan could like send in votes as to like who would they want to play as in the game. And I, I just assumed that, I just assumed like characters like Ace and Hancock just got a ton of votes and that's why they were in there. I think that ultimately they decide to base their selection around the team of choosing characters specifically from the Whitebeard War. Uh, I, because if they were going basically on popularity alone, then I seriously doubt that uh, Sanji and Zoro wouldn't be considered or included. Uh, certainly Akainu would not have been included as the antagonist choice for One Piece because he's That's not true. very popular. He's not necessarily a, one, the most popular One Piece villain. But, like, he was the antagonist of that art i mean you never know apparently your rouge has like his own like fan club or something i've i remember hearing I mean, that sure somewhere. <laughs> but i don't remember rouge ranking very highly in the last popularity poll either i so, mean like that's, that's a lot fair. of characters have fan clubs but that doesn't mean they'll be out like established like regular characters no i, I get you uh but yeah i mean i kind of i re- i understand the mythology behind their choices here this time like, they really are trying to choose, like, the most popular characters and, like, characters that would make a lot of sense. Like, if you're going to choose an antagonist for One Piece, like, at this time in the story, like, probably want to just go with Blackbeard because, like, yeah, he's he's the series antagonist at this point. Like, we don't know much about Kaido and Big Mom is just a, what felt like just an arc villain at this time. So it's like, yeah. That makes sense. Mm. Uh, and then going into, uh, you know, right now we don't know if there's going to be any more Hunter Hunter reps, but like, I do think it's nice that they've chosen Hisoka over Killua just because that's a character that we haven't gotten to play as before. And, you know, it's again, another antagonist, which is nice. Another common theme that I'm noticing among their antagonist choices is that, that they're choosing antagonists, you know, that are very clearly like main antagonists of the series are like really frequent recurring antagonists but they're also antagonists that can be allies they're not purely foes mm-hmm. like they can they can be on the side of the protagonist now that might change in future like uh selections as we get you know more reveals but like that seems to be a common thread and also it's very notable that the antagonist choices are characters that are still alive like in whatever uh continuity that they're pulling them from in terms of like the timeline the of where of where the characters are at so like that also is a notable choice to me but hmm. yeah i mean yeah I've, i i see what you're saying i do kind of hope that they include kilowa though cuz i mean i might be biased but i mean i love kilowa he's probably my f- i mean yeah kilowa is <laughs> my favorite hunter hunter character too yeah but yeah i mean i'm just in terms of variety though i'm kind of feeling like you know eliminating it 
to two characters per series for most series, I would be okay with if it means more representation from other series in there. Yeah. Like, I'm honestly a little disappointed we're getting four One Piece characters again. And I hope they cap it off at four because I want as much representation from other series in this game as possible. Okay, yeah, we do have four. Luffy, Zoro, Sanji, Blackbeard. Yeah, okay, yeah, we do have four. I mean, for One Piece, it's understandable because, like, it's One Piece. It's like... Yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah. the most popular Jump series, so it makes sense to me. Yeah. Oh, also, uh, they didn't confirm this, but, like, in the screenshots of, like, the, you know, leaked page that was made this announcement like during the hunter hunter on the hunter hunter page you know you can clearly see that gon is fighting vegeta so basically <sighs> it's confirmed that vegeta is in this game too so he, yeah. he wasn't confirmed already he wasn't confirmed already so mm. yeah yeah i mean i was gonna say like if before we found that out like we only had goku and frieza so far right mm-hmm. mm. okay so i mean yeah you got you gotta put vegeta in there like there's no way you can't yeah, I mean, as far as iconic characters go, like you have to. Mm, man, I, I'm I'm interested in seeing what other series they're they're gonna pull from. Let's see. So they got One Piece, Bleach, Naruto, Hunter Hunter. Am I missing anything so far? And Dragon Ball. And and Dragon Ball. I mean, duh, of course. Yeah, I can't, I can't think of like I, I want like I really wonder what else they're gonna put in there. I think that MHA should be a given. I I, mean, I would yeah. be really surprised. MHA and Black Clover. And uh, even Demon Slayer, I definitely think that they'll put in some reps. You think so? Oh, yeah. I mean, especially with the anime next spring. That's true. Yeah. A good time for it. Like, mm. And the manga, again, is extremely popular already. Mm, okay. So yeah, I, I, guess, I guess that choice kind of surprised me just because I'm just kind of under the impression that they're going with, like, stuff that they know is, like, really popular over in the U.S. And, you know, Kimetsu no Yaiba, obviously, we're, we're kind of just now getting over here. But I'm sure, like, it'll be interesting to see, like, how well it's received over here, especially when, like, the anime comes out. Yes, but I also think that, you know... They'll put in as many of the current series that are in Jump uh, in general in terms of, like, giving them reps for this game. Like, Gintama, I would be very surprised if Gintoki is not in this game. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Gintama's such a hard thing to quantify over here because, I don't know, like, people online seem to love it, but it's like... I would, I would, I would hope that Gintoki's, you know, included. And, and if he is included, I hope he has, like... I hope he less... I, I hope he has less, like like gag moves you know because i feel like as, as much as i liked playing as gintoki and j stars like i feel like he didn't have a lot of like i don't know i i, I felt like his his uh, his move set was a little too like gag centric i would have liked i would have liked him to maybe land more damage with some of his hits but i mean i don't know mm-hmm. that, that's well, just j stars wasn't aware he balanced game to begin with so that's definitely true um, like on the technical side what i've heard of jump force it's a lot better on that front well, that's that's good at least. Yeah, I don't know. I hope Gintoki's in there. I hope maybe we get some Yu Yu Hakusho characters. That would be really cool. I definitely think we'll get Yu Yu Hakusho. I mean, Yu Yu Hakusho is a big series internationally as well, so no reason not to include mm. uh, them. I want. I pr- I would personally vote for Yusuke and Kuwabara. <laughs> just just because he got his spot in um in J Stars already, so. I want I want one of the other uh, three main characters to kind of have their time to shine. But uh, anyway, um, so the the only other thing I guess I forgot I kind of forgot to mention earlier is that we also have two new stages with uh, Planet Namek and uh, what seems to be New York. So 
But yeah, this is a first stage from a manga that I believe has been confirmed because before they were saying that, oh, all these stages, you know, they're going to be real life, real locations. And so now we finally got to sure that, yeah, no, there's actually going to be stages set in worlds from the manga. So, you know, that's good to hear. I mean, that'd be weird if they didn't include stages like that, honestly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I would have been disappointed. But they're also like crossover kind of stages because the Statue of Liberty isn't dynamic so i the idea from this for this game is that like you know uh the worlds are crossing over so like things are things are going through i guess and mixing and matching between the fictional worlds of the manga and the real life locations of the real world mm. it's interesting but yeah i'm i'm still kind of excited for this game like i would i would really love to check it out when it's finally out yeah you know what would be interesting colton uh since the death note characters in this game maybe the bakuman characters would be in this game there'd be the whole, this whole extra meta level to it huh? <laughs> yeah it, it turns out that this whole game is just it's just a giant manga written and drawn by mashiro and takagi that would be a great twist for the ending of this game that would be really interesting. I don't think they would ever do it, but that would be really interesting. But yeah, I mean, Bakuman was a very popular series over here. And, you know, that's why we're going to be talking about it with our good pals, Sam and Nick, right now, basically. So let's pick up our pens and let's start drawing some lines. Uh, we're not going to really be doing any drawing, I guess. Uh, <laughs> you'll, at least nothing you'll be able to see because this is an audio-only podcast. But yeah, let's... uh. <laughs> Let's do what we always do and talk about manga, and now let's talk about the manga about making manga, Bakuman. Alright, I guess we should just get started. So, uh, like we said at the top of the show, uh, today uh, we have two very special guests uh, on the show today to help us talk about Bakuman. Uh, first off, we have uh, Sam Leach from the One Piece podcast and a uh, reviewer on ANN and whatnot. Uh, hey Sam, how's it going? hey It's doing alright. It's a little early for me, but we'll figure it out. <laughs> Uh, and uh, as well as uh, Nick from our very own AllComic.com. Hey, Nick, how's it going? Going on, guys. I'm excited to be here to uh, talk Slam Dunk with you. Oh. <laughs> oh, oh. oh, no, wait. We're not talking about Slam Dunk. I guess we forgot to send the memo. Sorry, sorry, Nick. We uh, we trapped you into talking about Bakuman. <laughs> Bait and switch. <laughs> all right, all right, uh, well, all right, all right. <laughs> Though, whenever we get the slam dunk, you'll be the first person we call. I promise yes. you that. <laughs> Into it. I, I mean, it's it's the least we could do, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, I, I'm really excited to have you guys on to uh, to talk about Bakuman. Uh, I personally, um, not not to brag or anything, but uh, apparently I'm the only one who, <laughs> who actually had the chance to uh, revisit the entirety of Bakuman. And uh, I'm sure we will talk about uh, why that is in a second. Unlike the characters in Bakemon, I did not have the willpower to pull all-nighters just to read a manga. Like, I already did that earlier in the year for months on end to fin to try and finish my uh, film. So I'm not I'm not going to do it again just for a manga. I'm sure you could understand their, uh, their feelings working and creating on something, Sid. Yeah, and it's like... 
how I can definitely relate empathize with, oh my god, the struggle of trying to do a creative project like this and, like, sacrifice sleep and your health and, like, get something done. And, like, the insanity it takes a mangaka to be able to, like, complete 19-page weekly chapters for a full year for years on end. Man, I <laughs> I could barely even finish my film. And it's, like, that not nearly as many drawings. I guess we could just kind of jump into it, though. Um you know, for those who may not know Bakuman or what it is, just to kind of, you know, just to just to kind of give the skinny of it, I guess. Um, you know, Bakuman is essentially a manga by Sugami Oba and uh, Takashi Obata, the same duo behind Death Note, which we have uh, talked about on the show before. And so uh, Bakuman in particular is about these two kids, one being uh, Mashiro Moritaka, uh, who is essentially, you know, he's just kind of going through the motions. He He's kind of bored with school, and he doesn't really have a lot of direction in his life. He doesn't really know what he wants to do with himself. Um, he's just kind of studying. And then one day you have uh, Takagi Akito, who is this uh, really smart student at uh, Mashiro's school, uh, always getting, like, top grades and whatnot. Uh, but apparently he is very into manga, and, uh, you know... He he wants to become a manga writer, but, uh, you know, his art's kind of crap, so he he notices that Mashiro is basically good at drawing, uh, you know, from his doodles of uh, of Asuki, the girl he likes, you know, in the middle of class, and uh, he basically uh, coerces Mashiro into uh, becoming a duo with him and uh, in order to uh, create manga for Weekly Shonen Jump, and, uh, you know, there's a whole subplot about... Uh, Mashiro and Azuki getting together if, uh, basically, if Mashiro becomes a popular manga artist, and if he can get his work animated, and, uh, you know, if Azuki can basically voice the heroine in his work, and uh, if they do that, they can get married or whatnot. And so, basically, from there, the, the series is basically about Mashiro and Takagi getting into Weekly Shonen Jump, and, uh, you know, spoiler alert, they eventually do, and, uh, yeah, the rest of the manga is basically sort of a look into what it's like working for Jump. And uh, yeah, so I guess um, we can just kind of get started uh, the way we usually do, talking about uh, how we all kind of discovered and got into Bakuman and what our first impressions of the series were. Sid, do you want to go first? Sure. Bakuman's reputation had preceded it way back in the day when it was serializing. Obviously, it was by Sugumi Oba Otakashi Abada, so there was a lot of hype uh, around it because Death Note was so popular and acclaimed. And, De- and Bakuman had similar acclaim as it was being serialized. You know, people were talking about it uh, with as much excitement as they were the big three, as they were One Piece, Naruto, and Bleach. And so eventually I got interested in reading it too. And I remember it was around uh, the fall of my sophomore year of high school. So about fall 2010. So it had been about uh, a little over a hundred chapters at that point. And then I read through the entire series, uh, series up to that point. I liked it so much that I read through it again, not immediately soon afterwards. And then I had kept up with the manga from that point all the way up to its conclusion. So for reference, when I caught up to the series, the Nanamine arc was just starting, the first one. So I, I read the series weekly from that point all the way to its ending. 
Uh, and Bakuman, I enjoyed the experience of reading it week to week. I enjoyed the manga a lot. Obviously, you know, I was the same age as Mashiro and Takaki when I got into the series. So a narrative about, hey, here are these teenagers trying to make it big in Weekly Shonen Jump. And they're working their ass off to get better at art and to really become comics professionals, really become like... Uh, make it big and like the biggest comics magazine in Japan and uh, you know that was really inspiring for me as someone who has like always been drawing comics since like as a kid just for fun and like my art is not still not I don't think it's still very great but like it definitely like when I was in high school Bakuman definitely like gave me another surge of inspiration to like you know draw constantly and like you know st- keep creating like my own comics and like you know I, I could never of course uh replicate what Mashiro and Takaki did but like it was a huge like creative inspiration for me and like as someone who was always deeply fascinated with show Shonen Jump and Shonen Jump series, like a look behind the curtain at the creation process of a Shonen Jump manga, at the struggles, the life, the tribulations of uh, the life of, ma- of a manga artist, uh, and all the politics of running a series in Shonen Jump, all the like crazy details, the nuances of the survey system, and all of that stuff. That impealed me, that enthralled me. Like a lot of people, I think, of our generation who like had an interest in shonen manga and we're you know as we read Bakuman for the first time we feel like oh my gosh so this is how everything works oh my god this is such a revelation this is ingenious we we didn't have this information before but like now we are finally seeing like how our favorite manga are being made in one of uh you know if you are if you were in love with the series one of your favorite manga and like that's the core of the appeal of Bakuman back then and I think I guess still now is that it is a shonen jump manga about making shonen jump manga and perfectly encapsulates the shonen jump spirit of friendship effort victory like it is a shonen manga of making shonen manga and you know that's that's what made it stand out back then and i guess what makes it stand out back now but of course you know i uh my feelings on the series have changed over years and we'll get into that later but i'm very interested in hearing what sam and nick's first experiences were with bakemon uh sam would you like to dig into like what your experience with bakemon was Oh uh, yeah, um, I suppose it wasn't far off uh, for me for what you went through. Said where I was in, I was in se- a senior year in high school, so basically just getting ready for you know college and stuff. And I was, I finally had a smartphone. Like I, I got a cell phone like way later than everybody else. But when I got my smartphone, like one of the first things that I did was uh, I downloaded the Viz Media app, and I was just like kind of looking at stuff and buying One Piece volumes and yada yada. And I checked out the free preview on Bakuman, and I was just immediately like, whoa, there's a manga about making manga that is like this. Like, I, I've always liked uh, Obata's art style. I think even even for how graphic, even for like how kind of graphic and, and I guess leaning towards realism his art kind of tends to go or how, how dark his art tends to go, it's very magnetic and electrifying and exciting. And so that that got me to start buying the the volumes digitally. And so I was I think there was like maybe seven or eight volumes at the time. I, I'd have to double check when uh, each volume got released. But like I I caught up very very fast. It was just like such an addicting read. 
Uh, and uh, going back to it, like skimming through it, every time I skim through it, like I, I go right back to where I was when I was like 18. Like I'm just like so I've realized like how formative it has been to me and like how I look at art and like how what I think the artistic process is supposed to be like. And I and it reminds me like how much of that like I brought into because like when I what I went to school for was like film. Like I'm very like uh, all sorts of like creative fields are interesting to me and like artists are interesting to me. Uh, so like I, I brought a lot of what Bakuman made me feel into school. And so like it's super embarrassing to like, look back and see how many of my like uh, my my student projects were just like very meta, like me trying to make Bakuman, but about movies. <laughs> <laughs> Like I kind of put it the the manga aside in my heart for a while, like but like just just opening it up again for this uh for this discussion, I was like, ah oh, crap, this is just like a part of me forever, isn't it? Um, wart, warts and all. No, that's, that's that's nice though. Um, I want to go next just because I feel like um Nick's feelings will probably lead into the discussion overall. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, my, mine's pretty quick. So I I basically got into the Bakuman around the same time, you know, high school and whatnot. Um, and uh, I think I, I I got into it when it was still running in Jump. Um, I don't remember whether I just kind of like found out about it or if someone had recommended it to me. Um, but um, I. Uh, you know, I th- actually I think I do remember. It was, um, I think it was around the time I had like just started getting back into the um, into Viz's print Shonen Jump because there was a time where uh, where I, I bought it very religiously for about a year or two, and then I just kind of stopped. But then I think around like twenty eleven, actually twenty ten, um, I think I started buying it again, and I'm pretty sure I had an issue. Uh, that had a preview of Bakuman at the time, you know, when Viz had actually licensed it along with like Toriko and stuff. Um, and I remember reading a preview of that in um, in the print show and jump and thinking, oh wow, of uh, like you know, like uh, how Sid and Sam felt, like wow, it's a manga about making manga. Like you know, as as someone at the time who like really really loved manga and comics, but really didn't have much of an idea of like how they were made or what the creative process behind those were. Um, I thought Bakuman as as like a I want to say I was like a, a sophomore or a junior in high school like I thought it was very very like infinitely interesting and you know for a while you know really thought of Bakuman as like like the like the guide to uh, the industry whereas nowadays I don't really feel the same way but uh, as much anyway um, I like back then I just I thought it was like so interesting and educational just as someone who really had, again, no idea about the creative process and what the industry was like at all. Um, and I, I remember, I mean, if you asked me, like, I have no idea, like, because I, I I read a bunch of it up until I started reading it weekly, but I couldn't, like, tell you uh, when I started reading it weekly, because I honestly don't remember. But uh, yeah, I think I read it weekly for about a year or two before it ended in, like, 2012. But uh yeah, no, Bakuman at the time was just such a was just such an interesting series to me. Um and uh again, my thoughts on it have slightly changed, but uh you know, I would say that I, I still like it, but I don't think I love it. Um I mean honestly, like Obata's art is just so uh I mean I I I I'm a fan of his style too, especially um especially the more like um I guess rubbery uh, cartoony kind of uh style he kind of takes in Bakuman but uh yeah 
uh, that, that's pretty much it's pretty much how I got into the series. Uh, Nick, uh, what has your experience been with Bakuman? I am very interested in hearing this. <laughs> well, you guys are definitely making me feel like the old man of the podcast here. But uh, <laughs> so uh, I had taken over ordering manga for the store uh, a couple years when into when Bakuman first started coming out and. I was kind of in full cynic mode at that point. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, you know, it came out and it started doing really well in the store. So, uh, you know, with, with, especially with manga, when something becomes really popular and sells really well, I try and familiarize myself with it just to, you know, have an understanding of what it is. And, uh, you know, I, I knew the creators because Death Note, of course, is a gangbuster seller. And I am not a fan of Death Note. I think that is one of the most overrated pieces of garbage in the last 10, 15 years. So mm, I'm going... In, words. Yeah. I, 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 I'm going to make you guys regret inviting me on this podcast here. <laughs> I mean, this but, is exactly why we did invite you on this podcast. <laughs> but uh, so, you know, I tried to put that aside and I picked up Bakuman and I was like, oh, this is interesting. You know, this is a, a comic about making comics, much in the vein of like understanding comics or comics and sequential art by Will Eisner. Except it's not like either of those at all. Uh, and, you know, I really struggled and and kind of made it a few volumes through and decided, okay, I have a firm enough understanding of what this is and just let it go. Um, and it continued to sell and continued to be popular. And I sold it, you know, with a smile on my face and, you know, kind of gloom in my heart. But, uh, <laughs> you know, and then I'll give it my all tomorrow came out a couple of years later when Viz introduced their Iki line. And I read that and I was like, now this, this is a comic about the industry. But I think that I'll give it my all tomorrow is a, a much stronger take and a, a much stronger and more succinct take on the industry. Uh, but, you know, my my experience with it was more or less kind of following uh, a wave of popularity to understand what was going on with it. So a little bit less in-depth than you guys. So let me ask you, have you ever read Bakuman in full, like the entire series? Uh, no, I've not. I've never been able to make it all the way through because it's just, I, I, I can't handle it. it it's it's a bad comic as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, I, I, I really, I genuinely tried to do it for this podcast. I, I tried to put my biases aside and read it in its entirety. And every volume I got through was just a struggle uh, because the perspectives they have on the industry are not only super myopic, like the, their perspective of the industry as presented through this comic, it's like, you can tell they're focusing on really specific aspects, but there's a lot of glaring holes missing in this comic as far as like what's represented in the industry. And, you know, they place a lot of importance on the reader and all this stuff, but the reader, you know, is almost absent from the comic entirely as is like the, the reading experience you know, it's it, it's this bizarre mixture of of you know their opinion of what the industry should be and what it is versus the reality of what it is, and it's I, I don't know, it, it confuses me a lot. 
I mean, there there are times in the series where like that once the duo gets series up and running, like uh, like PCP, Perfect Crime Party, and a Reverse C, where like I, I think we get at least like one time where like you know you see like ki- they see like kids on the playground like uh, playing pretend or pretending their characters from Perfect Crime Party or. Uh, there, there's, there's like one, there's like one moment I think near the end where you see a bunch of middle schoolers reading Reversi and they're kind of talking about it. So I mean, like, there are moments like that, but I mean, I do agree that like it, those don't really serve much purpose to the story, at least not in my opinion. Um, I think we could have, we could have gotten uh, that perspective a bit more frequently. I think, I think that would have been, um, I think that would have been nice to see. They're also pretty wrong and cynical about certain things. I mean, like, one of the most famous examples that both you and Nick tweeted about was, like, at the beginning of the series, Tagaki was mentioning, well, sports series aren't going to be popular anymore. But then four months after Bakuman comes out, Kuroka's Basketball comes out. And Kuroka's Basketball grows into, like, one of the most popular modern sports series. To be fair, like, when Kuroka's Basketball started, it wasn't, like, that popular it took until like it took a year i think until like the first match with like almine school for it to like really hit its stride but you know again they they completely uh uh, fell on their face there and saying oh sports manga aren't gonna be popular anymore and then uh one of its peers that came out that year was and on top of that like haikyuu comes out a couple of years after Bakuman de- debuts, and Haikyuu is still one of the biggest series in Japan. Like yeah. that, that, that thing's a, a a monster over there. But on top of that, this comic reads like a sports comic. the The arcs evolve and stuff like like a sports comic would in in a lot of different ways in terms of having you know rivals and rival teams and all this stuff. I do pitch it that way sometimes. Uh, it's, a, it's a sports manga about drawing, where the sport is drawing. <laughs> Basically. I mean, it's what they describe in the series as like a non-battle battle manga, like a, bat- a battle of the minds kind of manga, which, and functionally it, you know, is structured like a sports manga in terms of like every like mini competition they have against other mangaka in the series. It's like its own little tournament, very comparable to that kind of structure from a sports manga. See, I remember seeing that. Uh, I remember seeing that comment uh, early on in my read through, and that just made me think. Like, I mean, I'm sure at the time it was it was like pretty close to ending or or whatnot, but that really makes me think. Like, it makes me wonder how series like Ice Shield Twenty One were doing at the time in the magazine. Was Ice Shield Twenty One even still going by the time uh, Bakuman came out? Yeah, because Bakuman came out in two thousand and eight, and then I'm pretty sure Ice Shield Twenty One ended in two thousand and nine. So it was it was just finishing up, I guess, around that time, or it was on its last arc, probably. But I mean, I I guess for Ice Twenty One in particular, like I know people have their opinions on the last arc and how unnecessary it is or whatever. But um, I, I I guess I don't know if I don't know if you know Japan felt the same way or I don't know. That just just kind of made me wonder about that. But you know, but I guess that's neither here nor there. It was probably an observation they made based on like failed sports series in the magazine up until that point like there was probably a recent string of sports manga that didn't get off the ground and so that's what they were basing it on but uh they of course you know just were 
they kind of missed the point or like they assume too much of like, you know, here are a few misses, but you know, a hit was just around the corner and it's still kind of the same way. You know, there's a lot for like every sports manga that has a long lifespan. You see a sports, a lot of sports manga that don't succeed in jump, but that's kind of the same for like every kind of genre, you know, that comes into jump, like the romance series, uh, shown in battle series, like, before We Never Learned uh, found its stride, like, they tried Love Rush, and Love Rush didn't last. Uh, so, like, romance. So, you know, it's it's not just a sports manga trend, really. Mm, but but also, I would I would also attribute that to maybe they're teenagers. Like, what do they know? <laughs> but they're teenagers speaking from the point of having in-depth knowledge of like how manga works like they're speaking with an authoritative voice and that is never challenged uh it's like consistent throughout the series it's like you know there are times when mashiro and takaki's uh, views on things are challenged by an editor and stuff uh but in general when it's just them talking to each other about ideas that is presented like as factual as oh this is how it is these guys know what they know because uh, Takagi is super smart and has done research and Mashiro has learned a lot from his uncle so you can trust their opinions on this and that's never challenged yeah i, I get the sense that a lot of times these two guys are just proxies for Oba and Obata well i mean that's that's transparently what they are i think mm -hmm. i mean yeah. they're very clearly based on oba and obata as a pair and i think they put a lot of their personal experiences into mashiro and takaki's story like uh, i think there's a lot of reality they put into bakuman but of course they fictionalized it so again i think that's what leads people astray on bakuman sometimes is that they take it for granted that everything presented in bakuman is like for true for sure accurate to how things are but it's been sensationalized to work as a shonen story so it shouldn't be trusted as like a, a an authoritative like the only like this is the only way things are done this is actually how things are done when it's you should treat it as a piece of fiction i'm i'm sure bakuman is probably like one of the biggest biggest reasons why like you know people online are so obsessed with like you know, like, um, I, table of contents, a table of contents. Yeah. And people taking that as like the Shonen Jump rankings or Which, whatever. You know, it's funny because it's easy to miss this, but very early on in the series, Fukuda asks his editor, Yujiro Atari, like, oh, the, uh, like the table of contents are based on the survey results, right? And Yujiro says they are not absolutely based on the survey results. It's just like a general rule of thumb that the more popular series are placed towards the front, at least less popular towards the back. But they're not like absolutely ranked. But like that one like panel where that is explained is completely overshadowed by all the times in the series where they're obsessed with survey rankings and take that as like an absolute statement on a series' popularity relative to another series and stuff. So it's really easy to see how fans of Bakemon have misconstrued that idea even though they try to clarify the difference but they don't do a good job at like maintaining that difference and it's also easy to forget that the survey results that they talk about in Bakemon are different from the table of contents results because you'll consistently hear them talk about how one shots are ranked and stuff 
you know, but, you know, when you see a table of contents, you don't know how one shot is ranked, you know, as a reader, because, you know, the one shot isn't like being consistently serialized. So that wouldn't affect like how it would be placed in the magazine or anything. So I think it's easy for people to forget that the survey results that the older authors in Bakuman, all the editors are talking about, they're different from like the actual table of contents and what the table of contents order represents. Uh, but, you know, that's a definitely like a a miscommunication that has gotten out of hand and exacerbated in like the Shonen Jump, like manga reading fandom. I thought it was kind of interesting. One of the more interesting aspects of how they discuss the surveys and stuff is that, you know, how how surveys impact not only, uh, you know, whether or not a creator will have a, a you know, a follow-up series or a follow-up serialization or something, but the, uh, the fact of how it translates from moving from Weekly Shonen Jump to a Tonkoban release. So, uh, like... How some stuff, how one shots and and maybe tryouts may never see the light of day outside of a weekly Shonen Jump, um, just because it it had unfavorable reader reviews and like I, I'm I kind of take that with a grain of salt, but it's it's interesting how you know the Japanese model of comic release is that you know you can in order to get your hands on some of these stories you'd have to track down the actual issue of Jump. Whereas, you know, in, in Western comics with the, the single floppy releases, stuff that doesn't warrant a trade release, well, you can still find the single issues and you don't have to have, to have these giant tomes. So it's, it's, it's an interesting contrast between the two sides and, and one of the, the few strengths left in uh, how Western comics are released. Made me think about that a little bit, at least. Yeah, I mean, if a series... Or, like, even, like, a one-shot like that isn't popular. Yeah, you might not see it get collected elsewhere. You'd have to hunt down, like, that original run of Shonen Jump or whatever magazine's printed in. I remember I was discussing with Maxi with uh, Shaman King uh, a few weeks ago that Shueisha originally was not going to publish the final volume of Shaman King that would have collected, like, the last couple of chapters of its run in Shonen Jump. And so if they had never done that, if there was no, like, fan outcry to get that final volume released, like... Imagine those volume, those chapters would never be collected in volume format. You'd have to like search out for those individual Shonen Jump issues that would have those chapters in it to read them. And you know, I I had a hard time believing there was an actual aftermarket for issues of Shonen Jump beyond the obvious stuff like you know Dragon Ball and and you know the the major titles. But I got to tell you, after going to a few uh, locations of Mandarake in Japan. Oh my god, dude! It's for real. It's like it is for real. I, you know, I, I went into the the flagship store in uh, in Nakano Broadway, and they have uh, you know all these different stores split up across the strip mall, and one of them is like the classics area, and the entire back wall of the store is just nothing but weekly Shonen Jump issues. You want wow. the first issue uh, <laughs> Fist of the North Star appeared in, they pull it right off the shelf for you. And how much does it go for? Uh, depends on the series. I, I looked at the, the Fist of the North Star one was like 20 bucks. Um, no, but I'm sure. 
Yeah, but I'm sure like some other stuff is a little bit more expensive, especially the further back you go, which is mm-hmm. you know for obvious reasons. But right, and I, I I was happy to see that there is indeed an aftermarket for a weekly Shonen Jump, even though these things are printed on highly degradable <laughs> paper. You know, so it, it it made me happy. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of treasures uh, stuck in those old volumes, like beyond the series themselves like there are things in the original runs of those series like maybe some art changes that you know were corrected for the volume or you know like one shots as we exist before or even heck just like all the news and little articles in the jumps like they're that stuff that people with a collector's mindset will definitely want to seek out and preserve so uh yeah i can definitely imagine That'd be a serious like business for people, uh, hunting down and reselling Shonen Jumps. I didn't mean to derail the conversation there. I just thought that was a little <laughs> interesting tidbit. <laughs> no, I thought that was interesting because I, I honestly, I was, I was kind of under the same impression that like you know, because I, I always hear all the time that like you know in Japan like people just kind of like, uh, I you like you're kind of expected to like throw away your jumps at one point because like like you said they're on basically really they're printed on really low quality paper so like you know people people don't really see you know much value in in keeping those over a long period of time like people eventually just throw those out usually oh yeah if if you're if you're living over there and you don't actually want to buy any of these magazines you know if you commute on a daily basis you could probably just pick up a copy on, on the train or like Look in the garbage bin, and they're on top. Right there's the the latest issue of <laughs> Shonen Jump. Garbage hunting for Jump. Like I, I'm not, I I mean I'm not joking about that. I, I've seen it, you know. So it's it's that's for real. So wow. You know, if you're living in Japan and you're cheap, it's easy to find these magazines. You know, if you're riding the train. So pro tip. <laughs> <laughs> Got to keep that in mind whenever I go to Japan. Do some garbage hunting for some jumps. Maybe <laughs> maybe get lucky and find some Sundays and magazines in there, too. Oh, wow. Sounds like a way to spend an afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there are better ways to spend an afternoon in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, to veer back on topic, so there's a lot in Bakemon that is trying to represent the manga industry. It's specifically the workplace culture of Shonen Jump, but not necessarily doing it accurately. And, you know, then that leaves people to, like, think about, uh, like, how, how like, we can Bakemon, can we take any lessons away from Bakemon, like, in terms of, like, understanding, like, what the workplace culture of Shonen Jump is like? Like, how much of it can we trust? Like, I... I never got too sucked into the idea that it was like a very accurate or a very like, or that it was ever going to be like a how-to guide mm-hmm. of how to get into the industry or how, how the industry is going to operate uh, once in there. But I do, I do think it brings up certain aspects of the, the experience that, you know, must be true. Like the, the, the work ethic that it takes to do, like uh, you crack open I think it's with within like volume two or or something where there I'm trying to remember what scene it was, but there there's some scene where like you're you're really faced with like how much work it is, how much effort it is, and and even even when you know logically that it must be a lot of work, like it Bakuman puts it in a way that's like, oh shit. <laughs> like it's a lot of work. 
yeah, Bakuman's really good at quantifying and like it representing like how much effort it takes to be a manga artist, like how much time it takes and how much skill it takes. Like before they're you know even getting serialized and stuff, Mashiro has to spend hours and hours in loose sleep just to practice drawing, just to like you know make sure that his drawing skills, his foundation is good. And even then, like he still has to learn about like the best way to communicate his comics and improve like his skills on that front. It isn't a constant growing process for him throughout the series to like keep getting better as his art and realizing, Oh, there's still things I need to improve on. Like, you know, it takes hours and days, you know, to just draw the series. But on top of that, he has to spend extra time thinking about how to improve his own art constantly. And so, Bakuman's really good at communicating that effort and, like, that daunting task and the scale of that task. Like, the idea that Mashiro decides he's going to replicate a hundred different pages of a, a battle manga from ten different battle manga. Like, a thousand pages of battle manga. That's, like, an insane amount of effort. And that's just to get better at drawing. Just so that they can have the skills ready for weekly series. And then, of course, in that when they get their first weekly series, like, Obata really expertly communicates, like, just in the f- face of Mashiro, like, how much toll it is taking on him physically. Like, bags under his eyes, like, weak posture, like, he can barely, like, stand up and, like, sit up during the meetings with Hattori. And that all culminates in him, like having to be hospitalized because of liver failure, I think it was. Like, he incurred some medical problem because of malnutrition and overwork. And I think that all of that really, really communicates that this is a really, really taxing lifestyle. And I think that was incredibly important for a lot of young readers to kind of recognize is that, you know, Making manga is something that only people who truly love manga could put up with because the amount of effort and physical and mental toil it takes on you is insane. And even then, a related element that I think Bakuman was very good at sort of communicating to me at that age was, you know, like the how much your ego has to get put through the ringer mm-hmm, at, yeah. at any given point, like how how much you yeah, like you can put so much work into something and be so proud of something, but then like you also have to be the kind of person who has the guts to just throw it away and start something new. Yeah, uh, because there's always going to be somebody who's going to get ahead of you if you if you dwell too much on on one thing. Or yeah, like the most iconic scene for in Bakuman for me, like one of the most iconic scenes is like the end of Volume Two where they've just spent like a lot of time working on these storyboards for a series they want to pitch but then they realize you know it's not going to beat Eiji Nizuma's work they're not good enough yet and so they don't show it to Hattori and like Mashiro just throws it all away into the river because you know we're going to start over from scratch we're going to keep improving and just we're going to make something that will beat Nizuma we're not good enough yet and that was like that was like one of the most powerful moments for me like back then and even in the reread I still love that moment and then consistently throughout the series they've had to they have to learn through trial and error you know they you know make a new work but that new work is just a stepping stone to get to something else like when they are trying to come up with the ideas for PCP they have to they try two different other ideas both of which don't really succeed but they learn from those ideas and put that into PCP and it's just a constant learning process for them and not just them like for other you know creators and 
it's also very important, like how much advice they take from their editor and like knowing when to take editor suggestions and knowing when to stand up for their own ideas. But like another very powerful moment is like when Takahama, who is one of their peers, like he's complaining about Miura, who is also their editor. And like he goes up to Sasaki-san and he's like, you know, I want a different editor than Miura. He's not letting me draw what he wants. And Sasaki-san is like, I will not give you another editor. If you can, are not being able to draw what you want, that is your problem. That is not the problem of your editor. It, you're basically telling me you are not good enough to draw what you want if you can't do it under Miura's supervision. And so, you know, that's a really important moment to, like, you know, let go of your own ego and just focus on getting better under your circumstances and, like, learning to take advice with humility, but also, like, learning how to do what you want while taking feedback and suggestions that you maybe you don't want to take but are important and you need to take anyway so like creative concessions like that while still making something that you're proud of that is a really important lesson to take away too as a creative professional but it's also a kind of a scary lesson that makes the the editorial staff look like assholes sometimes like (laughs) sometimes i think in that moment though that was an actual good lesson though that yeah i i can agree with that that you know i mean miura like as a character like throughout the series you're like oh this guy's decisions are just terrible this advice he's giving them is bad but like at the same time you know you can recognize that mashiro and takagi can like work under those creative limitations to make something they're good of instead of like just uh complaining and and like that is something like not just true of the manga industry but like you know even the western comics industry i'm sure and like the i know for sure like animation industry you have to like be able to make concessions like that but still be creative about uh, enough to apply those that feedback and still make something you're proud of like that's just kind of a reality of working as a creative professional i really think there's a major disconnect between how they present both the work ethic of of these authors and the pressures that editorial places on them and how the consequences of those impact the creators because you know like you were mentioning earlier uh uh god i I can't remember the character's name because they're so unremarkable uh moritaka he's he's the the artist right yeah yeah so, you know, he goes into the hospital and he with liver failure because he's just overworking himself. And everyone's reaction is is like shock and horror and you need to get better. But at the same time, under all that shock, everyone's like, wow, what a guy, you know, what impressive work ethic. And, you know, it's it's worth noting that uh, Takehiko Inoue, the, the creator of Vagabond and Slam Dunk and everything, that's exactly what happened to him and why his schedule is so sporadic now. He worked himself into the hospital and he had an awakening and he was like, look, I can't do this. I'm going to kill myself if I keep doing this. And, you know, it's the same thing that killed Tezuka. Tezuka overworked himself to death. And it's 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 the thing that Shigeru Mizuki cites as being like one of the most important things of how he decided to work. He was like, I needed to get proper rest every night. I needed to adhere to self care, and my edit my editors and the companies I work for be damned over it because 
my life was more important to me than than my comics and i feel like my comics succeeded more because of that so you know i i think that bakuman while it does portray the lifestyle of a manga artist fairly accurately to what we understand it to be it doesn't challenge that lifestyle and the the way like shueisha and publishers exert that lifestyle onto manga artists and i think that's one of the major major faults of the series is that you know especially for something in shonen jump running in shonen jump where younger readers are supposed to read this you know to not challenge that at all and say you want to be a manga artist prepare to suffer that's like that's a terrible message to send to kids yeah i think that it is a little i think you could argue it's like an example of tossing masculinity in the way like it it glorifies overworking yourself because that is like what a true man does. I mean, there's this conversation that Takagi has with Asuki in the hospital and Asuki's like, you're the one who called me and saying like to, to help uh, me stop, you know, Mashiro from working. So why are you not doing anything now? And Takagi's like, well, you know, I guess it's because I'm because I'm a man. I got to respect like Mashiro's dedication here. And it's like, what the heck, man? I and, almost you know, threw my you, phone. Yeah. Uh, there's this, <laughs> and again, they they repeatedly reference uh, the ending of Ashita no Joe, like or not even just the ending, like uh, ideas from Ashita no Joe, like uh, in chapter two or three, Mashiro's dad like quotes Joe's famous like uh burn to white ash line and then again that's referenced when mashiro is in the hospital where he feels like where he said to tataki that he feels like joe going into the final match and uh Takagi's is like but wait didn't joe die and it's like uh i think you're kind of taking away the wrong message from machine no joe and joe yabuki's life and how that ended up like uh you know, it's like you're kind of glorifying this idea, this masculine idea that, oh, you worked yourself to white ash. You put all your all into it uh, and you leave yourself with no regrets. But it's like I, you should value your life a little more. I think you shouldn't like put yourself into this desperation where overwork yourself and like not enjoy your life. You know, that's that's kind of a bad message to send to kids. You're also kind of like reading the ending of Ashita no Joe wrong. It's supposed to be like a, a melancholy ending. Also, like Joe doesn't not necessarily die at the end of the series. It's supposed to be ambiguous ending, but that's a, a whole nother discussion. But yeah. Yeah, I was I was gonna say that that was like uh that was definitely one of the most like iconic moments in Bakuman to me just as a teenager was you know, just seeing an actual manga artist, like, be hospitalized because of overworked, like, that really, like, that really shook me up as a teenager, because I honestly really had, I mean, like, I had no idea at the time that, like, you know, these creators and these artists, like, put themselves through the ringer just for their work, like, you know, you constantly hear stuff about uh, people like uh, Oda, who, you know, who, who is now taking frequent enough breaks from his work, I want to say, what is it, at least, like, one break every month, every two months, something like that. Mm, it's like once a month. It's it's frequent enough that you know because he he's had complications, you know, because of how much he works. Like the dude only gets like three or four hours of sleep a night or whatever because he's constantly working. And and I mean also that's because like you know he he enjoys his profession and that's that's worth putting out there too. But I mean like you know they're they're making him take these breaks now because they don't they don't want this man to kill himself for his work yeah. and. 
like you know that that was just such an informative thing for me as a teenager to like to learn just how much these artists can suffer for their work sometimes whether whether it's through their own uh whether it's through their own passion or or whatnot um it was just it, it was just something that you know while i i agree that you know it, it is kind of it is it, it's very dangerous to like glorify you know this um uh, the, the this thing where it's like, oh man, he worked himself to death. Like he he's a he's a real man or whatnot. Like that's a very dangerous mindset. I agree, but I mean, as a teenager, I I couldn't help but respect Mashiro for his work ethic a little bit because it's like, or I guess just a, just just like you know, manga artists in general. Like wow, these these these, these guys like really put their all into their work. Like, and that maybe just respect artists like so much more. You know, it, it 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 taught me to not take these series and these works for granted, and I think I think that's still valuable. Yeah, I felt the same way when I was reading it and still reading it. Like I still like admire Mashiro's dedication. I still take a lot, you know, out of that commitment and like what that means. But I also feel like there's still mixed messages because it, during that arc, the editorial department is trying to be the voice of reason saying, you know, no, you should not overwork yourself like this. We are not going to run your series. Do not work on this. We want you to be healthy and then you can come back. Take care of yourself first. Like that's what Sasaki-san says. That's like what all, that's the opinion of all the editors besides, you know, like Miyura, who just kind of goes along with it because he gets caught up in like what Mashiro wants to do. It doesn't stop, doesn't think about what, you know, what's better for them, what would be healthier for them. So, like, on the one hand, you know, you do have, like, the voice of reason the editors, but, like, they ignore that. Like, Mashiro and Tagaki and everyone around them, they ignore that. They, like, go up to, like, boycott, jump for the decision of, like, you know, putting their series on hiatus. Like, there's just mixed messages and, like, what you're supposed to take away and, like, what are you supposed to, like and what lesson you're supposed to take away from this like are the editors being unre unreasonable for not <laughs> worrying about the health of their author i mean unreasonable for worrying about the health of their author like what it's just like you understand like from the character's perspective that they're so like motivated like so desperate to like make their work successful and get an anime right so you understand why mashiro takagi are like that but like they're they're why are their friends not so not uh, so not concerned about Mashiro's well-being you know uh, it's just i i liken it to like a story about a, a story that's supposed to be like a a cautious warning against drug addiction by a person <laughs> who's still addicted to drugs <laughs> And like I'm, I'm not like even really making the joke. Like I yeah. think that for I think for the Odas of the world, like it is like a pathological. Like you are addicted to whatever gratification you're getting out of the the process. No, I mean I I, I laugh because it's it's kind of true. Like that's that's the most accurate way you could put that, honestly. Yeah, and I think that's uh I think that is you know like it, to to be conflicted like that to know logically that it's it's bad for your bad for you it's bad for your loved ones but they're also it's still romanticized in your heart and you're still kind of struggling with that and i think that's an oak i think i like seeing people express those kind of conflicts in themselves it's a it's a big part of what i think gives bakuman its energies it's not it don't i don't think bakuman has any one specific thing to say i think it's like trying to just express mm -hmm. a lot of the time but i you know I would question whether or not that that drive and that diehard ambition is a result of indi individual volition 
or is it a result of how the industry requires artists to perform and to produce at, at, such, a, at such a rapid rate? You know, it, it, I, I, I don't know that I, I would say it's more the latter than the former because, you know, having to having to turn in 19 pages every two weeks is an insane schedule. That is insanity that to, yeah. to be able to do that for years on end for a long running series like you know you have to be inhuman or willing to die in order to do that even if you have assistants helping you out that's that's just a crazy amount of production yeah, yeah. and i think like bakuman presents it as like this is the drive of the artists themselves to want to do this but it ignores the side where it's like this is how the industry works from the editorial standpoint is that this is a requirement that they're kind of forcing on the, you know, mangaka. I mean, we can actually see this through Hiromaru and that Hiromaru constantly wants to take breaks and stuff, but like his editor is constantly forcing him and manipulating him to keep going, even though he doesn't want to. And it's played for laughs, but like, you know, actually think about it seriously. And it's like, you know, what if Hiromaru was working himself and exhausting himself and needed to take a break to, you know, take better care of himself? Like, you know, Yoshida is like torturing him, basically. Yeah, they, they really they really present it as, oh, Hiromaru's lazy. He doesn't want to work, which is kind of true. But like, I mean, if like, like you said, Sid, if you think about it really seriously, like everybody needs a break. It's just, I mean, and I, I feel conflicted because, like, those are some of my favorite. Um, th- I think those are some of the funniest moments in Bakuman. Like, I always looked forward to seeing the wacky misadventures of Yoshida and, and Hiromaru. I, I, I would honestly just read a series all about them. I'd rather read that than Bakuman, to be honest. But you know, that's just me. <laughs> I, I totally agree. I mean, Hiromaru is. I, I think Hiromaru is definitely a more uh, interesting and likable character than uh, Mashiro Tagaki, honestly. At least my perspective nowadays, I feel like I relate to him more than I do Mashiro Takaki. <laughs> I was gonna say, like, they're definitely like, like the the other artists are like, yeah, they're they're infinitely more interesting than our than our two main characters. Which I mean, I think is sometimes a problem with shonen manga in general. Like, yeah, you you have your main leads, but like all the secondary characters are like kind of infinitely more interesting, and you want to just you want to see them instead of your main character. But um, yeah, Hiromaru is probably my favorite character along with uh Eiji Nisuma. Um he's yeah. he he was always yeah. such a joy to see. It like uh, me, me and Sid were uh, were talking off mic about like cuz you know we we were kind of throwing around ideas as to like, you know, uh, uh the idea of of what artists like maybe uh Oba and Obata uh, drew inspiration from to create these characters and uh you know, first off, I, I like to think in some ways that Hiromaru is probably is probably the fictionalized version of Hideaki Sirachi, the author of Gintama, in some ways. Though his relationship with his editor, the more I think about it, maybe it is like a reference to Toriyama and Torishima. Probably. <laughs> like, Toriyama constantly wanted to end his series and take a break, but Torishima was like constantly pushing him along. But it's yeah. also worth noting that uh, Sirachi also also had his in and outs with uh, with his editors, which he would always talk about all the time <laughs> and always bring up in uh, in the Omake pages for volumes of Gintama, which is pretty great. But uh, you know, Sid and I were talking, and like you know, we 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 ultimately don't think that like Nizuma in particular probably isn't based on any one person because he just he feels like a character very specific to Bakuman. 
But, you know, in terms of his, like, output and the terms of, like, all the work he puts into a series and running multiple series at one time, like, that that really reminded us of, like, Hiromashima and, like, yeah. the work that dude puts in. Like, that, I, I don't think I have, I don't think I have nearly as much respect for any artist as I do Mashima because, like, like I mean, you know, and and that's not to his say ability, yeah. his output is just insane. Like what he can do on a weekly schedule while maintaining the quality of his art is like incredible. Like you know, I have problems with his stories, but like, man, as an artist, like I I can't fathom like just how incredibly skilled that guy is. Like, there's no way I can't respect him, honestly. Yeah, no, but yeah, I think Nizuma is kind of like the idealized. A vision of like of a mangaka in the eyes of Oba and Obata. Like he's like an eccentric, but he's pleasant. He's a lot of fun. You like being around him. He's a guy who inspires others. He's a guy who constantly strives to do better and better. He never lets his series slip. Like he's just uh, a perfect artist in every way. It, like they draw comparisons to him as someone who would be like one of the mangaka of old who could handle doing more than one series in a weekly magazine. Like I think he really is like their uber ideal of what a mangaka should aspire to be. Uh, and I don't know if that's I don't think that's necessarily a good thing uh, if you try to apply it outside real life because Nizuma is inhuman cartoonishly so because when we see him do storyboards in the series like it seems like he does it in like an hour or something because like like his editors are just standing on top of him or other characters are just standing like right in the room and it's like there's no sense of how much time it took but the the fact that they're still there and it didn't take more than a day. Like, it's just insane. How could you draw a 19-page storyboard, like, that fast, like, at a, any level of quality? And then later on in the series, they extrapolate and say, oh, it actually takes Nizuma nine, a whole day to do a storyboard and then two days to do the, the final drafts. And even then, that's just so insane. How how does he do that? Like, and he he never looks tired or physically exhausted. Like he's always chipper and upbeat. Like he is he's like such a cartoon character. I can't imagine a guy like him existing in real life. So he works great for Bakuman as like this unbeatable person that you that like he's larger than life and you don't know how like a normal person can measure up to him. I mean, he's like the manga artist that other manga artists wish they could be. Basically. Basically. Yeah. Pretty much, yeah. I think this is a good time to bring up, or a relevant time to bring up an anecdote from Western comics uh, involving Jack Kirby in the late 60s. So uh, Jim Steranko took over Captain America for a period of time, and dude wasn't turning in pages. So at 5 p.m. on a Friday night, Marvel calls up Jack Kirby, and they're in a panic because Steranko hasn't turned in his pages. They're going to press on Monday, and they don't know what to do. Kirby says, no problem. On Sunday night, he sends them 22 penciled, inked, completed pages for an issue of Captain America, and the issue ran on time. So, like... That that kind of work ethic is, you know, it seems like it's inhuman and impossible, but, you know, some of these guys, you know, you look at uh, Stan Sakai or Sergio Aragones, though I, I watched, I actually saw uh, Stan Sakai, uh, the creator of Usagi Ojimbo, I saw him in an airport one time on the way back from San Diego, and he was working on a page of Usagi, and 
dude knocked out an entire page while he was just sitting there in the waiting room or in the, the terminal before boarding the plane. Like it was nothing. Wow. And then picked up the next page and started knocking out the next page. So some of these guys are just able to, to, you know, they're speed artists, you know, they're able to, they're so in tune with their own individual style that they can just blast through entire chapters of a comic. Like it's nothing. So it's you know it's, it it really depends on the artist I guess. Yeah, that, yeah, that's pretty amazing. I mean, it's definitely not implausible what is Nizuma does because it's definitely like real life artist who accomplished what he could accomplish. But it does feel like oh my god, just like the way he carries himself, he's larger than life. Unlike other characters, he never like seems to suffer in health or lose any of his enthusiasm. Like he never seems stressed out at all. Yeah, and like like you said, Sid, I don't know if that's really a good thing or not, but you know, just I, I mean, like at least as a character, Nizuba was always was always a joy to see. Yeah, I mean, I always enjoyed him. I always found his interactions with any any character really fun. Like he, he always brightened up the manga. Again, because he's such an upbeat and cheerful guy all the time. Now, he, here here's a question: what What about our least favorite characters in Bakuman? Uh, Nakai. I don't. <laughs> how is there? Oh. How is there any other answer? Nakai is scum, and I. I what I hate about the series is like yeah I mean the series you know presents Nakai as scum people call him scum but like they call him scum because his of his work ethic and not the way he treats women and it's like what the fuck guys what what is <laughs> what is this message you're sending he's scum because he's he's fucking trying to like take advantage of Wokiko he's trying he's like making like the women he works with uncomfortable he's such a misogynist he's just an awful human being like in every way and yet somehow like the characters never like give up on him because they respect him as an artist too much like even after all the shitty things he does where was he at by the end like at the end of the series he's working with hiramaru like as his assistant so like like, yeah, he, he gets. Oh right, right, He gets right. like even he, he, even though he doesn't really change as a person, like the, he gets redeemed in a sense that they like let him be stick around, and it's like I don't, I hate that. This characterization is a roller coaster. What's even more screwed up is that like um the the deputy deputy editor in chief like um uh, you know at one point he, he even he's like okay this dude is like causing us way too much trouble like. I'm I'm not gonna hire this guy anymore. But the other artists are like, no, but like we could still give him work or whatever. Like, hey, maybe he could work with Mashiro or whatever. And it's like, guys, come on. <laughs> yeah, no, like when after the whole incident where he's trying, he tells Okiko because he gets it because he feels rejected that Oki doesn't want to work with him anymore. So he he get, becomes an assistant for uh, Takahama and he works with. He works alongside Kato, and just because Kato is nice to him, he thinks that, like, she's flirting with him, and he oh gets it God. in his head that they're in a relationship, and it's like, uh, when Okie, like, wants to collaborate with him again, you know, he, he like, acts, like, all 
big and stuff is like oh you know i'm already in a relationship with another woman so if you want me to work with you i will only do it under the condition that we get into a relationship and then you know of course oki slaps him and stuff and says you're awful but nakai is like well i know your answer and then like you know when everyone else hears about it they're like ah man nakai that was a dumb thing for him to do like they don't take it seriously what he did at all like like fakuna gets mad at him not because of how he treated oki he gets mad because Nakai turned down a chance to work on a series again, and that's what pisses him off and makes him punch him. Not that he treats, like, women badly. And then at the end, of course, even after everything, even after he bails on Takahama, like, when his series is canceled, and he realizes he's not going to get with Kato, like, he doesn't come into work. Ta- Takahama has four chapters left. He still has a job, but he bails on Takahama. And then and even then, everyone's like, oh, Nakai, you can't give up. You can't quit. We like you still. You're such a great artist. Mashiro's like, hey, Nakai, don't don't give up. Like, Mashiro gives up. Like, even, like, I don't understand why Aoki even tries to pity him and like say oh thank you for your work like no fuck that guy why are you why are you giving giving him a shred of forgiveness like i don't and see this is this is ties into like oban obata's uh treat ideas on women treatment of women like and stuff but you know i don't think nakai is adequately punished for like his awful sex uh, scummy behavior towards women and he's like because all the characters still respect him as an artist and they don't hate him as a person and it's like even though he treats other people who are their friends awfully it's just i hate him so much Uh, but before before we because i i think this is probably as good a time as any to to get into like the biggest problem uh of bakuman and you know what, what what was like you know, it, it, it's from what I've seen, like, it seems to be an issue in, in anything written by Obata. You know, th- there were shades oh, of this in Death Note, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, compared to Death Note, I don't think, while it does exist in Death Note, it doesn't exist on this scale. It's it's so much worse here. Like we read Bo- we read Dead No last year, and like I came out of it actually thinking, "Hey, Misa's actually a pretty good character." You know, uh, you know, as a character, you know, she's actually quite smart. She's actually quite you know in control of herself. Like it's just really shitty that Light takes advantage of her and manipulates her, but Light's the villain. And then like L is also a manipulative. He's not actually that good of a person, so it kind of makes sense. Like, why people are treating her this way. I still think, like, a lot of the sexism is coming. Like, the way that Oba writes uh, Light's mom and sister and, like, has Light's sister become comatose after the kidnapping and just does not get back to that at all. Like, just just uh, uses them as, like, plot devices, fridges them, but, you know. And then there's you know, Naomi. In general, it's, it's, in general, I walked out of that saying, you know, it wasn't enough to, like, turn me off the good qualities of the series, but, like, with Bakuman, it's so relentless, the sexism, and it's just so hard to ignore, because you're supposed to like the characters, the main characters, but they're just always so sexist just have these awful say these awful things that i are so since these characters are avatars and they're obanabata like you can't imagine that this isn't what oba actually feels like chapter two of bakuman where tagaki is explaining oh aski wants to be a voice actress because she knows that women should be naturally pretty and uh 
graceful and attractive Demure and voice actresses and, are you know so she's just trying to enjoy her life fully as a girl she doesn't feel any pressure like we do about the future and not whatnot because she's a girl and by instinct she knows the best thing for a girl is to get married and become someone's wife and until women don't then, have any problems whatsoever this is a fact <laughs> and until then no even after she's married she'll remain graceful and polite Oh, and because she knows her place as a woman, that makes her a hundred times smarter than Awaze, who is the smartest girl in class, but because she's not likable to boys, that makes her so much dumber. It's just, ah, I fucking hate Iwase is but Besides Nakai, Iwase is probably my least favorite character, just because she's just not likable whatsoever, and I do not give a shit about her growth as a character. Wasi is a character I really want to like because it's kind of like with Misa is that man Oba treats this character so badly I want to like her I mean she makes it hard because she's like because she's possessive and obsessive in the same way Nakai is uh and you know in terms of like relationships like she she is competitive for towards Takaki because like he spurned her uh, interest and so now she wants to crush him and stuff but like eventually there's a brief moment in the series where that transforms into like an actual enjoyable rivalry when pcp is just starting and she learns about like the conditions that if pcp isn't competitive with plus natural and crow like it'll be canceled and so she calls takaki up and says you know i'm gonna let you know i know this and i'm gonna let you know that i i'm not gonna lose to you even though i know this so you better be prepared and you know then it actually becomes a fun rivalry and then she becomes a better character for a little while and that and then it's great and then it looks like things are peaking up but then like the oba continues to belittle her throughout the series after that because she she doesn't she ranks dead last in the romance manga contest and then she like you know uh nizuma loses interest in plus natural and like everyone's like shitting on her because her story writing has become bit worse and then she tries to commit suicide at one point and it's just like (sighs) Give this woman a break. Hold yeah. Um, going back to Nakai real quick, um, I do agree that he is a garbage human being, and I hate him every time he's on screen. But um, I I do think it's kind of interesting in that like, uh, so, so somebody in my uh, in my Bakuman thread uh, tweeted. What was that? Did Buggy say the Buggy uh, was the one who tweeted? Uh, no, it was um, it was it was Hitchcock. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, he tweeted at me about how he how he found it interesting that uh, yeah, ba- basically Nakai, I think, I guess, has some value, some, very little, but some in the way where it's like, you know, unfortunately, there are people like this, and that uh, he found it to be sort of a cautionary tale, which I think is, I think is a valid viewpoint, but, I mean, it's still frustrating because, like, you know, uh, because of all because of all the of already all of the other sexism that we have to deal with from the other characters in Bakuman. So like, yeah, I, I like I kind of see the value in that, but it's like this on top of everything else, just like it, it's still exhausting. Again, there's mixed right. messages with Nakai's arc because obviously we're supposed to think of him as pathetic and a loser and scummy for being so obsessed with women. Like during the Nanamine arc, he like has all the male assistants fired because he only wants to work with the female assistants, you know. But, but he's a good artist, so he's okay. 
Yeah, again, see, this is the thing, is that all the protagonists still like Nakai, even though he treats women so terribly because he's a good artist. Like, they never criticize his treatment of women because it's sexist and misogynistic and awful. They criticize his decisions as a manga creator and not being motivated enough to get his own series or still continue work as a mangaka. That's what they care about more than his treatment of women, and that's what I'm saying about these mixed messages. And it's like saying, like, the series is telling you by what the protagonists care about that like they care about more about the professionalism and their pride as a mangaka than how Nakai treats women and there's no criticism of that at all you know it'd be one thing if they were like trying to explore the sexist workplace culture of like working for a manga magazine and the mentality of like maybe artists and stuff but they're not criticizing that they're just presenting it as is and as matter of fact I mean it's the same thing and this really frustrated me too is when Aokiko is like do, trying to do a romance manga for her next series and it's like the, uh, her editor Yamahisa is telling her oh we're only gonna need three panty shots every chapter and it's like what? And then it's like later on Takaki tells her like, oh, boys love seeing, you know, almost naked girls and panty shots. That is like uh, what a show meaning romance manga is all about. And no, it does not need to be all about that. Don't perpetuate that idea that that is a right. That is something to expect out of a shonen manga. That's something that boys are entitled to. What the fuck? Oh, about What the fuck? <laughs> If there's one thing that uh, Bakuman has accurately taught me about the industry is it did explain to me what the fuck was going on with the end of uh, cross-manage. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, honestly, reading rereading that, it also made me think about We Never Learn, Jump's current like romance manga, and maybe think, you know, I always feel like the fan service in this is forced because it feels like uh, Sui Sui cares more about writing the characters and exploring their emotions than the fan service. Like, at the end of the first chapter, like, there's just this out-of-nowhere shower scene, and it's like, wait a minute, there was no fan service up until this point, but it feels like this is forced in. And then frequently throughout the series, it feels like he has to force situations to do fan service and it fe always feels awkward because I don't think he's interested in that and so this kind of like explains a, that that kind of reminded me oh so maybe this is why it's like this fan service is a mandate because the editors think that that's what a jump romance comedy needs in order to be popular or they've got a uh, a quota of of boobs yeah. that they need in each issue that would really explain why there's so many kirisu chapters because kirisu is like the only adult female in the series so maybe like sweet sweet is more comfortable sexualizing her than the high schoolers Th th that's good at least question mark <laughs> but on the flip side kirisu is also the most popular character in the last character popularity ball in the series character popularity ball so it's like eh, now he has to draw more kirisu chapters because she's the most popular uh i don't know i'm sure she'll have the most merchandise maybe it, it you know it really wasn't surprising to me at one point some character brings up uh, Strawberry 100% and Masakazu Katsura, uh, w which are, you know, if, if you're not familiar with those guys' works. Well, Strawberry 1% is not done by Masakazu Katsura. That's a Mizuki Kawashita manga. No, I, I, I know. I, 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 but the, that was brought up alongside Katsura. Uh, so, that, you know, that's the only reason I'm mentioning it. But, you know, I'll go to bat for Video Girl Eye and Shadow Lady. I'll, I'll defend those. But Eyes is one of the most 
is one of the <laughs> trashiest, most garbage comics ever published. And, you know, the, the fact that one of, you know, Oba and Obata's characters actively brings it up and the way that, uh, that Miho and uh, Mashiro's relationship kind of evolves is like a really bad clone of the plot of Eyes. You know, it's, it, that's really not surprising to me, like how on brand they are with uh, talking about and depicting shonen romance stories. Because, God, they just, they, they, they pick the trashiest inspirations and they're like, this is great. This is the epitome of shonen romance. Like, come on, guys. So, so as somebody who hasn't read Eyes or the or this next tile I'm going to bring up, so is it is it trashier than To Love Rue? Like, I'm I'm trying to get a good metric because I haven't read either series. Uh, I would say yes because really because Eyes, oh god, Eyes starts off really promising and then it's just like a cock tease in the worst possible <laughs> ways. And like, it, 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 it's about fetishizing this, this, uh, the, the lead female protagonist who's almost invisible in the comic, despite the fact that she's one of the, she is the other main character in the series. And then it's 15 volumes of the main character trying to hook up with her and her admitting in multiple volumes, like, yes, I'm interested in you. And he's like, but are you? Are you really? <laughs> this sounds like a real downgrade from Video Girl Eye. Yeah, and then he basically rapes her at one point. You know, it's it's oh. like... Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's terrible. So it's, you know... It's, <laughs> so, of course, you know, that's why I'm saying, you know, the fact that they bring up eyes or, or they they bring up uh, Katsura in... in Bakuman as the as the epitome of shonen romance. I was like, yeah, of course you'd bring him up. That that makes complete sense. That's on brand, guys. That see that that makes me ashamed because I, I'll fully admit that like you know what was it when I was like fifteen or fourteen or whatever, and I still had a I still had a Borders uh, nearby where I lived, close enough to where I could walk. Every once in a while, I would always see eyes on the bookshelves and kind of flip through it. I'd be like, oh, oh, and I like, you know, I, <laughs> and like, you know, I would, I would flip through certain pages because I didn't know what it was, and I would see all these panty shots. I'd be like, am I allowed to look at this? Like, are they allowed to sell this? And like, ever any time like people would walk by, I would like immediately put it back because it's like, man, I really shouldn't be looking at this in public. And that's what that's the reaction they want to get from the teenage boys. It's like, oh, I'm feeling so adult because I'm reading like something that is like softcore porn. Oh, oh. <laughs> like that's the appeal. It's like, no, please don't like promote that as something that uh, kids should be reading. Yeah. Whereas nowadays, I'd, I like you know from from what you're saying about it, it just it just sounds it it doesn't sound enjoyable at all, and it sounds like something I would really struggle to get through all of. If you enjoy reading a series about the main premise never happening for 15 volumes, <laughs> then you will love Eyes. You, you, it'll be your favorite comic. Oh my god. I think it'll stick with Video Girl Eye. I recommend tracking down Shadow Lady too. Shadow Lady is kick-ass. That comic is great. Was that, a, was that released in English? It was, by Dark Horse. Oh, oh wow! wow. Huh, hopefully, it's that. still in print and I can find it. It is not, but it's cheap. Oh well, hopefully I can oh, still okay. find. It. I found other like out of print stuff. So how how long was it? Uh, it's four volumes. That's sure. Okay. Mm -hmm. huh. 
Yeah, sounds really interesting. But um, I guess just to get back uh, back to the topic. Uh, uh, also related to Awoke Ko's experiences. I mean, we brought up Mizuki Kawashita before, but like, yeah, I, and I feel like I think that she might have been based on Aokiko might have been based on Mizuki Kawashita and what she had to put up with someone who is writing romance manga for Jump, you know, and had to put in fan service in her series. So, like, you know, reading everything involving Aokiko just made me feel so bad for female artists trying to write a romance comedy at Jump. Well, it's they, they they give themselves these opportunities to have a bit of enlightenment. Like they have they have characters like her where you know she has experience in writing shoujo comics and she's moved over to shonen. So like you know you could question whether or not it's time to to maybe get a different perspective on shonen romance by bringing in a female artist and trying to trying to showcase some of the strengths of shoujo through a shonen framework. But no, it goes unchallenged, completely unchallenged. She's like, you know, Shoujo and Shonen, they're just completely different. They're incompatible, you know, it's a boys magazine. Yeah, you need to learn how to draw panty shots. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, God damn it. And she's so, I, I was so happy for her later in the series where she got to draw like a romance fantasy one shot that didn't have to have fan service in it. And she was noticeably so happy about that. And I was, and I was happy vicariously for her for not having to draw all this bullshit anymore. I I also I also love how the, there are some points where like you know they they talk about the like different ratios when it comes to like the voter the votes in the reader surveys where it's like oh we got this many female votes compared to this many male votes and it's like and they just like completely disregard that like oh this is a boys magazine like you know if it you know if it doesn't appeal to boys and whatever and I I, I hate that mindset so much yeah that that's exactly what I'm talking about it's like they have. They're on the brink of these moments of clarity, and you think, oh man, are they actually going to make a breakthrough? No, they never do, because they're incapable of, of changing their mindset. And what, one of the most, one of the most um, I, I, disturbing may not quantify this the way I want to, but one of the most disheartening chapters in this, in this series, as far as I got, was when Miho is grappling with doing that photo book, right? And she's she's you know she's an she's an under eighteen girl about to do this kind of predatory thing in order to advance her career, and at that moment in in the comic they have a direct forum to address sexism as far as you know what female actresses and voice actresses and and you know a female presence has to deal with in a lot of media in Japan, and it was completely ignored. And they completely ignore it. But not only that, they disengage it in a way that that's just the most disgusting way possible. Like she brings it up to Mashiro, and he's like, "Well, you know, I, I would w- want to see you like that, but you know, he, he he never he never asks her what she wants." Yeah. Like, she defers to him. She's like, oh, would you be comfortable with me doing this? And he says, no, I want to see you like that first. So it's like, ugh. And that's, no. and that's, where, that's where we see the fallacy of agency in this comic. Because agency only goes as far as the authors are willing to provide it for their characters, right? It, true agency doesn't exist. And we see firsthand... In that example, that agency for female characters in Bakuman truly doesn't exist because Oba and Urbata can't be bothered to provide it for their characters. And it's it's like, come on, guys. 
like right from the beginning, they established that their ideal idea of a woman is like that submissive, like passive type like Azuki and like the competitive, aggressive types like Iwase, you know, are not attractive. And like it's re- that's reinforced throughout the series as they completely shit on Iwase uh, throughout the series, whereas like, you know, they they romanticize Oski and stuff but we also never see like Oski the ins and outs of Oski's career in depth unless it like affects Mashiro so it's completely unbalanced in that respect but also Aoki Ko gets shafted so much throughout the series too because first of all her character completely changes from how it was originally established because when she is first introduced you know she's blunt she speaks her mind she's not afraid what anyone else thinks of her but then like suddenly like after Trap is cancelled and the series is transitioning next thing like suddenly her character changes and she's more she's really unsure of herself and she won't speak up for herself like there's this scene in where they're meeting with Ishizawa and like he's like making these just awful like sexually harassing comments about her and before like the Aoki character Aoki Ko as we had originally got introduced to her like the the very confident like you know blood woman who was who is not afraid to like say to tell people to shut up or say that uh you no know, your ideas are bad and I'm not gonna agree with them like she's just like sitting there and she can't say a word and it's like she has to be rescued by like she has to be white knighted by a Fukuda like coming in and punching Ishizawa and it's like what the hell like just a few chapters ago you had Okiko at least slapping Nakai but even then you're presenting her as vulnerable and like she's not pissed up or like she's crying and stuff like so that in itself like made me mad like why is she why is she so distressed like this this is not how she was originally presented as like you're completely like weakened her character for like out of nowhere and now it's like digressed so much that she's not even standing up for herself like what what the hell well, where did this happen how did this happen did you realize i think what happened is that they realized that awokiko and awazi's characters were too similar so when they were reintroducing awazi into the story they wanted to change Aoki's character but they did it to the detriment of her agency and her ability to be confident speak up for herself and then she's reduced to basically being a love interest for hiromaru and it's like yeah, they, they, it's it ends up being cute, but it's like she still just becomes like an object at that point of for another character, like to motivate them and like yeah. to be manipulated by Yoshida and to in order to motivate Hiramaru. And then there's this brief moment where she, you know, she's she, you know, wins the romance like uh, the lovers one shot fest or whatever, you know, being able to do a fantasy romance manga, you know, that doesn't have any fan service. And then, yeah, she did something. She made an accomplishment. She beat out the rest in the competition. She beat out her peers in like one of the competitive fields. But then when Nizuma is ending Crow and all the other authors are saying, you know, we're not going to let you end Crow. We're going to be better than you. And then we're going to prevent you from ending Crow. You can't do this. But Ko is the first to drop out because she was going to give this weak-ass excuse like, oh, I realize it's, it's not suited for me. I'll just let you guys do it. It's like, what the hell are you doing? She is like the only like female rival like you're, you're paying any respect to even a modicum because you're completely shitting on a waze here. 
and now now you're having her be the first to drop out for a week as reason you're you're just not interested in her at all it's like it made me so pissed off because like i like when i was a kid even like i was really invested in where okiko and awaze's characters would be because i really want was interested in like oh female writers writing for jump and like their struggles and tribulations all oh, that i i was really into that and then it just completely fizzles out and they treat the character so badly and it made me so mad just consistently consistently how like their character arcs turned out i i'm so glad i'm not the only one who who felt like there was no transition from her uh with her change in her character because like i i at one point in my read through i was like Aoki was a different character, right? I don't think she used to be like this. Like, I I had trouble trying to pinpoint the transition with her character because I literally couldn't remember. Like, when did she change again? Like, it just felt like it came out of nowhere almost. No, yeah, really. Like, it's like Nakai confesses his love to her, and then like then she changes. Like, but like why? Why? That why is that one scene like completely change your character after that point and make her unable to trust men and not be able to speak up for herself? Where did this happen? How did this happen? What? I don't. It made me mad. Really mad because she she, had this strong, confident female character, and then you completely rob them of their agency. It's like what the hell. So, if you guys will indulge me for a sec, I'd like to make a comparison between uh, how, you know, we've talked extensively about how Bakuman handles these types of situations. But there's a scene in, uh, I'll give it my all tomorrow, um, and apologies for the spoiler on this one, where the main character, the... uh, you know, he needs to unwind and blossom steam. So he goes to a massage parlor, massage being in air quotes. And he, you know, he's waiting in the room and the masseuse that comes in is his daughter. And Ooh. they kind of look at each other for a moment and she leaves the room and he goes and sees her back at home. And, you know, they having they're having trouble discussing it. And he's like, look, uh, I understand you need money and, you know, I, I appreciate that you're looking for it in the, in the ways, in whatever way you can, but please let me support you or please let me find you, a, you know, a, a different outlet for that because, you know, I, I don't want you going there. And they, they have this kind of really touching father-daughter moment in which, you know, they, they kind of open themselves up when up until that point, their relationship is very muted and, and they don't very, really talk very much. And that's an opportunity for them to both grow as characters but grow the the bond between them as as uh, father and daughter grows even more and then after that point the relationship becomes healthier and they're more open with each other so there's an example of how you know a, a, a comic about you know not about the industry can tackle some of that stuff and do so in a slightly healthier manner i was gonna say that sounds like a pretty powerful moment it's a really good comic. I don't know if it's exactly ana- analogous to like the what happened with Aoki's character arc, but yeah, that's like a good way to deal with those kind of issues. So definitely, uh, I mean that that's, that definitely sounds better. I think most accurately what I could compare that to is like the misunderstanding that happens uh, with Tagaki and Mihoshi, where like Mihoshi thinks that he's Tagaki's cheating on her with uh, Waze and stuff, and then eventually. It, 
comes down to like they all have to clear the air on the misunderstandings but like the solution to it is oh no let me marry you so then you won't have to worry about uh, me cheating on you because we'll be always be together and it's like how is that a solution you were always together before it's not like that doesn't necessarily change anything you should actually talk through your issues instead of like you know uh just just being stubborn and not like and expecting the other person to apologize first and like is that part of was so frustrating too so i think that is actually is a good comparison to what you were talking about with that scene in i'll give it my all tomorrow and how i'll give it my whole tomorrow like disgust is i discusses like has a conversation like that and this has the result of that is much better and healthier than like what happens with a tagaki mihoshi misunderstanding of bakuman Really, I just wanted to plug. I'll give it my all tomorrow again, but you know, I, I I agree. It's it's not directly analogous. I mean, you are convincing me that I probably should be reading that instead of Bakuman. Honestly, the one of the the another one of the main difficulties I have with Bakuman is that it, it has the Ice Shield twenty one dilemma, where the the main characters are infallible. They're they're fallibly they're infallibly fallible. Let, let, let me put it that way, like. You, they, they do fail at points in the series, but it's not true failure. Like, you know that there's success around the corner. Whereas, and I'll give it my all tomorrow, it, it, it's about this 40-something-year-old guy. He's a salary man, and one day he wakes up and he's like, I'm going to become a manga artist. But dude can't draw. He cannot draw. Like, it, you know, the, the difference in art style between the two is, is like night and day. And it, I, I don't know if you guys are familiar with uh, Heita Uma, uh, that that kind of style of artwork, or it's, it's like you can translate that to deliciously terrible. Uh, <laughs> I, I love this art style. I think it's so great. But you know, he goes in. He goes in full speed. He's like, I'm going to become a manga artist. And the series is just him getting rejection after rejection after rejection. And the the process is i think is more relatable and and presents it a lot better because it's about him growing as an artist and understanding what it means to be a comic artist while maintaining healthy work a, a healthy work ethic you know he doesn't work himself to death because he's already 40 you know and uh and on top of that like you know he inspires people to be better versions of themselves through his through the manga that he creates and as he passes it around so you know i i think it's a much more positive and much more profound perspective on the industry than bakuman in literally every way possible (laughs) i mean definitely the characters in bakuman are prodigies so they already start off like being really good at what they are doing and just have to get better like you know when they are sending their first work to Hattori like Hattori says well it's not that good but like clearly has potential and then very immediately there's they really improve really fast and so you know they have a lot of failures and setbacks but yeah you know you you do feel that because these guys are so good that they will ultimately see, succeed but where uh it seems like I'll give it my all tomorrow starts out is that like the protagonist has like no skills and like no prospects it seems and so he really has to struggle and so it's really like a come from nothing kind of situation that you know has more stakes to it it seems his major accomplishment in in uh that series is getting a one-shot published 
like that that's the major accomplishment of the series and it, like he never gets serialized in the entire in the entire run of that comic and he doesn't care he just wants to get published but honestly every comic he comes up with i would read that in a heartbeat his stuff is <laughs> so good anyway definitely seems more brutally realistic which i guess would make sense it's a seinen manga i'll give it my old tomorrow whereas bakemon is shonen so it makes sense that bakemon's like idealistic like it's optimistic ultimately like you can do this if you try it's that that's the kind of message it, it tries to get across which you know it's a shonen manga that that makes sense it seems to me that like p- part of the reason that they get as far as they do is because you know part of the reason is probably because well we have to move the story along and if we don't then it's like you know what's the point i mean there's very freaking moments of time compression where we don't like see like all the work that they're putting into what they're doing and we just see the result of it so like your sense of time is work is warped in terms of like how much time and effort went into what we're seeing so that does affect things but it's always focused on the results more than the process after a certain point. So you kind of forget that, oh, they're actually all these accomplishments, accomplishments they're making are happening after a long period of time. It's interesting because uh, I forget if it was Oba or Obata, but uh, one of them at one point in their uh, in their author comments in one of the volumes uh, basically mentioned that, you know, while a lot of time passes in Bakuman very quickly, that uh, the readers should still consider Bakuman to be taking place in present day, which is which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah, I think he means like he wants this series to be like timeless. Like imagine this happening now, like whenever you're reading it. Like yeah. So you know, even though the series like takes place over like a ten year period, two thousand eight to twenty eighteen. Uh, yeah, basically. Uh, so you know, even though it that's those are the dates in the series like he wants like readers whenever they pick it up like readers now to imagine okay they start their journey in 2008 and then uh, in 2018 and then you imagine like okay how things would be go as they progress from here or not which you know with technology changing and you know even with like the culture working at jump changing uh that also kind of dates the bakuman a little bit though I actually, I guess that's as good as time as any to kind of transition into uh, something I was kind of wondering myself that I really wanted to bring up on the show was that, you know, uh, it's a, it's no secret that I think for some of us on on the podcast here that Bakuman was uh, was sort of uh, was sort of formative in our um, I guess in the way we understand the manga industry, specifically Shonen Jump, and uh, I think back when uh, when some of us had read it back in the day that like. You know, it had a lot of value to some of us when we were younger, because some of us had uh, had very little knowledge of how some of this stuff actually worked behind the scenes. But and obviously, it had its influence over a lot of uh, a lot of the shut and jump community, as we have seen for better or for worse. But I guess uh, ten years after the fact, how much do we feel Bakuman has to offer? I guess ten years after its debut, do you still think it? Do you still think the, the the insight that it gives into the industry, again, for better or for worse, is valuable for, I guess, manga fans in this day and age? Or do you guys think it's just completely irrelevant? I think as far as being a timeless classic, it is failed in that regard. Uh, yeah. Because, you know, if you're really interested in reader surveys, then yeah, it's a timeless classic. <laughs> but if you're and you know some of the editorial processes is is insightful and cool but you know 
when you get down to it, it doesn't really say that much about the industry as a whole. Yeah, it's focused just on jump. But, and, and, you know, I think more fans need to realize that there's more to the industry than Jump. Jump just happens to be the, the biggest name in, in, in manga, uh, you know, arguably so. But, you know, there's a lot more out there. And this comic presents it as if Jump artists are only influenced by other Jump artists. And, you know, Jump is the main influencer, and it can't be influenced by anything else in the industry. And that's just not true at all. Uh, you know, like, uh, Tetsuo Hara, the, the artist on, uh, on Fist of the North Star... Or no, 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 I'm sorry. It's Ryoshi Ikigami. Uh, he said that one of his primary influences was Neil Adams, an American comic artist. So, you know, influence comes wherever it comes from. And the fact that they present this, like, if you're going to be in jump, you need to have the jump mindset and get a jump tattoo on your forehead and, you know. <laughs> yeah, or basically all the any influence of Sugumi Obas is valid and everything else, ignore it. Like exactly. He references some stuff out of jump. Like he references the work of uh, Ikikajiwari, who he, he writes in the first volume, it was the greatest shonen manga writer who ever lived. You know, for constant references to Ashina no Joe, Star of the Giants, all that stuff. So references stuff like that like that but like still like very limited references outside of jump like it is such a jump focused manga admittedly though i think that has always been its appeal is that it's a shonen jump manga about making shonen jump manga it's so shonen jump focused and i'm not really sure what another like replacement for it would be that is just that if you're just interested in that but as a if you're just referring to it as to learn about the manga industry as a whole it's incomplete because it's only shonen jump but if you're only interested in shonen jump and if you're like passionate just about shonen jump then i don't know like it's still incomplete and still inaccurate but what other replacement is there what other there isn't another shonen jump manga about making shonen jump manga uh, I would argue that Girls Monthly Nozaki-kun is a is a, repl- a suitable replacement for Bakuman because that says but again, way it's a more. Specifically, Shonen Jump is specifically like what I'm talking about here. Like people, like that was the appeal for me back in the day, and I'm sure a lot of people is that people want to learn about Shonen Jump. They had this ideal vision of Shonen Jump, so they wanted to learn about. They wanted to. They were excited to read a Shonen Jump manga about Shonen Jump. And so, what is the exact replacement for that? There's a lot of manga about making manga that are excellent and way better than Bakuman, but that specific niche. What else is there that could replace Bakuman? I can't really think of anything, honestly. Yeah, and that's the problem, is that that's what draws people to the series even now. But there's not a better example of what it does that does it better. I think that's a problem, honestly. Yeah. Is, is that, you know, the, the fact that Bakuman lacks any sort of objectivity at all, and the fact that it still is this paragon of, you know, this is what Shonen Jump is, that, you know, I, I think internally Shueisha and Shonen Jump should really look at that and be like, guys, we messed up. We need, we need to fix yeah. this. I was going to say, even, um, even Sasaki himself has, uh, has gone on record to say that, you know, Bakuman is still very fictionalized and not every, not everything that happens in the series is accurate. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that should be, you know, pretty clear just from the fact that like 
You know, it is a fictional story, even though, like, real people are depicted in it, like Sasaki-san, and many of the editors are based on real editors. Like, Hachiri, who is Mashiro no Tagaki's editor, he's based on the real Jean-Baptiste Akira Hachiri. But, like, still, like, they're they're not the real versions of those people. They're fictionalized interpretations of those people and this workplace culture. But, like, yeah, I mean, this is what I was thinking about reading Bakemon. It's like, you know, th- this is the appeal of the series that it's a sh- it's a it's about Shonen Jump. It is so focused on Shonen Jump. And then people read it to learn about Shonen Jump. But it doesn't do it, again, like Nick said, it doesn't do it with objectivity. It's just, like, this idealized version of this. And so we need another manga about Shonen Jump that is more objective and is more, like realistic or like at least more honest about like the challenges i mean not not i mean wakamon depicts the challenges but it needs to pick them in a more i want another manga that depicts them more down to earth and not necessarily cynical but like more realistic way like more relatable way that isn't like this idealized fantasy and again the bakamon the appeal of bakamon is the idealized fantasy but i think we need an alternative to it that isn't idealized that is it that is something that you could actually believe and is more accurate i think i think honest is uh is the best way to put it for me the main villain of bakuman is shonen jump <laughs> C- coming out of this comic i actually kind of like shonen jump a lot less now Honestly, I felt the same way. Like, even though it was trying to glorify the workplace culture shown in Jump, like, when I was reading things like, oh, uh, Okiko, you need to have street panty shots in your, in every chapter of your manga, I was like, this, this is disgusting. This is, why is this, like, treated as a matter of fact thing that it's like, oh, you should just go with it. Haha. It's like, no, this is, this makes me sad. I don't know, man. That's pretty on brand for shonen romance stories. Like Nisekoi is unreadable for that reason. <laughs> uh, I, I, I mean, Nisekoi, I think has a lot of merits to it, but still, like, yeah, I mean, that's the worst part of any shonen romance writing to me. It's like the blatant fan service that doesn't need to be there that detracts from the story. But I, and I don't think it needs to be that way. I don't think they need to have these arbitrary requirements of fan service. What do you think, V Lord? What do you think about fan service in shonen manga? Uh, a lot of the time it's very much unnecessary. Uh-huh, and why? Be- because it detracts from the actual story. You're just repeating what I said! Don't you have any ideas with your own? <laughs> I-, I don't know. I mean, it, get, it kind of works for, like, ecchi manga and stuff, because that's kind of the main selling point, but for rom-coms, not as much? So you like it in Yuna of Yoragi Manor, but not in We Never Learn. I wouldn't say I like it, but I understand why it's there. Okay, well now get out of here! Ruining our podcast! Go! <laughs> get out of here! That, see, this, this, is, this is my favorite part of any Manga Mavericks podcast is when uh, Sid forces V-Lord to be our surprise special guest. It's always great. <laughs> but, um, so, um, so, like, th- thinking back on Bakuman and, like, how, how it unfortunately represents Shonen Jump as a whole, and maybe even Shueisha to an extent, um... <sighs> And I, I almost, I almost don't even want to say this because I'm just going to depress myself and everybody in the room. But like, w- like thinking back on the events of Bakuman, like I'm almost not surprised that you know Shueisha took somebody like Watsuki back and had him uh, keep continuing yeah, work right. for Jump Square. Like, because you know, like, and, and that's a whole other like thing in general. But like, you know, at the time, like, I was like, man, how could they do that after all the shit this guy's done? But like. 
considering how like you know how we were mentioning earlier how they like treat Nakai as like this obviously he's a very scummy person and he treats women terribly but he's a good artist so he still has worth as a human being and we should support him like when I see things like that it's like I guess in retrospect I'm not really surprised because like unfortunately that kind of thing happens in real life too and it just depresses me all uh, that much more. Well, I, I mentioned this to you guys uh, on Twitter, but a lot of the mindset and the attitudes, uh, the attitude Oba and Obata's characters express towards women and how women are represented in, in Bakuman really parrots a lot of what women are talking about in the, the Japanese Me Too movement right now. Uh, you know, for, for instance, the, this one woman tweeted that she wanted to she wanted to be to to get a really prestigious job and have a really intense career so she worked her best you know she did her best in high school she got into waseda which is you know if you get into waseda the the common idiom is that you can get any job you want right and then when she went to interviews the common thread in all her interviews was them saying if you were a man we'd hire you in a heartbeat and wow. you know that 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 kind of that kind of garbage is mirrored all throughout Bakuman, and you know it, it, it's ingrained in Japanese society, to, and to the point that you know all these women are starting to have an open discussion about it, and it's a problem. It's a it's a societal problem, um, and that that isn't to say that the American comics industry doesn't have that problem because it absolutely does. But I, I feel in some ways that in, in on the Japanese side of things, it's almost, you know, a thousand times worse because of that. So Bakuman is a pretty damning indictment of of the Shonen Jump culture. And, yeah. you know, in that sense, maybe it is an accurate portrayal of, of, of the culture. Yeah, I mean, it really shows it as a boys club. Like... Iwase and Aokika are the only two female Angaka we see in the series that, you know, work for Jump. And there are no female editors at all. And they're constantly objectifying and, like, saying, oh, fan service, panty shots. Like, women need to be drawing cute and sexy and to appeal to boys and stuff. It's like, yeah, it's just, like, completely... Like, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of career momentum for any of the female characters in the series unless they work in like a female specific industry like Aski does but even then it's like so so all the sexism goes unchallenged like it said oh this is just what you have to do and it's not like oh but I don't want to do this on the part of Aski it's like oh I have to defer to my boyfriend because I don't want to make him uncomfortable about this and it's like Ugh. it's just awful and I, I, I guess I'll be the one to do it, but here's the obligatory four dudes talking about women's problem comment. But you know, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I honestly, I was, I couldn't help but think about the same thing. Well, I mean, anyone can be a feminist at least, but still, you know, yeah. I mean, I wish we, we, we could, we should, to specifically to talk about this issue in Bakemon, it'd be great if we could bring on like someone else to a female guest to do that. I can't imagine being being female and not being offended at some of the viewpoints represented in the series. Like I probably would have dropped it in a heartbeat, honestly. And he, and even now, like I'm I'm struggling to kind of think. Like I like 
I don't know. Like, I feel like I, I, I feel like overall, I still like Bakuman, but I mean, like, there's an asterisk. There's a very uh, prominent asterisk. Yeah, very. There are caveats to the series, unfortunately. And like, you know, as like, I still have a soft spot for it. But like, the more I talk about it with you guys, and the more I think about it, it's very glaring problems. Like, it almost makes me feel bad for liking it. Almost. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't know how to put honestly, it. Honestly, I don't even know if I can say that I like it. Like, there's there's still elements I like about it. And I still cling on to what it meant to me back when I was a teenager and what me it inspired too, yeah. in me and how I, what I took from it back then. You know, it was, again, like as we've mentioned, formative. But, like, rereading it and taking those, like nostalgia goggles off and like reading it as an adult with how i feel now and like you know how i feel about a lot of the things it's it's talking about now i i just can i just can't every everything i read there's just like it just chipped away at me i just liked it like it less and less and i can't say that i like it anymore like uh like again chapter two <laughs> like i i couldn't continue to see it for days after reading that it was just awful and it just never got better with that honestly i think um i think the saving grace for bakuman at this point is basically obata's art because i i already really love obata's art but i feel like throughout the course of bakuman it just i personally feel like it just gets better Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm I tweeted about how if like uh, about a point where I really feel like Obata is uh, he's really moving away from that super grounded, realistic art style that he kind of had to stay consistent with in Death Note and how because of Bakuman's story, he's kind of allowed to um, how do I put this? He He's allowed to be a little more um, expressive with his characters like. Um, it's it's really interesting uh, the kind of like comedic reaction shots that Obata draws for his characters. Some of them are really like, like it's just it's just it, like it it's so uh, it's jarring in a way because like you know I'm so used to seeing him draw in like that Death Note style that like it's so weird for Obata to like it's for it's weird for me to see Obata draw more expressively and more comedically. But I think for me that was really welcomed. Uh, it, it, was, it was just really interesting to see his style kind of change to kind of adapt to Bakuman throughout its run. And and I know Nick uh, has uh, disagreements with me on this, definitely. But I personally think that uh, it was really interesting to see uh, Obata adapt to different styles in order to uh, portray the manga being drawn by these individual artists. Um, and uh, very, very rarely did I think, oh, yeah, this is just... This is just Obata style. I, I I very rarely thought that they were like similar. Like the most similar, to, I, I guess, like the series that are similar to me as far as his style goes would probably be like stuff like Crow and uh, Perfect Crime Party. Anything drawn by uh, um, Takagi and uh, uh, Mashiro, with the exception of like when they were drawing Tonto. Um, but uh, I I yeah, I know Nick kind of disagrees with me on that. Well, I, I, I the perfect example of what I'm talking about is. The, the limited amount of that comic color fusical or whatever it, it's called uh, that gets yeah, shown. It's like you can t- you can tell Obata's trying to manipulate his style to give it more of like an indie or like a like a um, I guess indie is what I'm looking for like a more indie appeal and he just fails miserably at it. Like it, it that those pages that he's you know that he's mimicking look like complete 
garbage and not something that I would ever pick up. I mean, maybe that's the point because Kugi's supposed to be like, he's not supposed to be a good mangaka. Exactly. He's yeah. like this musician eh. who thinks he can do a manga. He's a musician <laughs> who thinks he can do manga because it's easy. So maybe the point is that his manga does actually look like crap. I think that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, okay. I'll, I'll concede that point. But if you're gonna if you're gonna like mimic Heita Uma guys, then just just do it. Yeah. Just go for it. <laughs> like, come on. But I honestly do agree with you that a lot of the styles, like, they still feel like, oh, yeah, this is definitely Obata, like, drawing this. Like, even PCP and, uh, like, all the stuff that uh, Ashiroge draws and all the stuff that Mizuma draws, they actually, they look in the same vein to me. Like, the only difference that I see in them is, like, the paneling. is That's the only noticeable difference that you see with Crow. He has, uh, like, uh, Mizuma has, like, these more angular, like, these, he plays with the shapes of his panels, whereas, like, uh, Moritaka, it seems, like, more like the stuff you'd see in Bakemon. So, but it seems always to me that, like, Obata is imitating other styles, but I don't think he perfectly m- has mastered the other styles. So, like, they, they always feel off when you see anything done by anyone else but, uh, aside from, you know, Mashiro. Yeah. And I mean, like, just as far as, like, um, paneling and, uh, and the sequences go, like, I, I really like some of the more comedic pages. Um, I really like the effect um, Obata does where, like... Um, I mean, this is this is not really the example I would uh, first pick, but uh, because I because it involves Nakai, and I really hate this where it's like you know because there there's a point where Nakai like is just out of work and he's basically reduced to drawing caricatures on the street, and uh, he gets invited back by one of his customers, this young girl who's like, hey, I want to have some fun, come with me, and basically just turns out to be her and her friends like tricking him or whatever, which God is such a cringy moment but like I, I i do like the little flourishes where it's like I, I like the little detail where it's like these small panels of nakai just like crying and running away i like i i, lo- I love the way that um even though I, I i hate that moment and uh because again it involves nakai i i really like when obata uh sequences stuff like that where it like you know uh basically shows some kind of like transitioning out of the page or whatever um i just i really like the way stuff like that is sequenced i think it i think it works comedically i i think they definitely do have a really expressive style but their level of expressiveness is limited and in a lot of ways repetitive and stiff you know it's it, it it's like it never it exactly meets your expectations of how crazy they'd get never exceeds never falls short always meets and that's you know that kind of sucks like they, they should have just gone for it you know and gotten gotten kind of crazy but yeah i don't know i i feel that they i feel like a, they draw the characters extremely expressively and there's a lot of movement in like the pages of them. like i think that obata is very skilled at like even though there's the, the characters are not doing very crazy things. Like they're usually just standing around and talking. Like I still feel an energy in their movements and what they're doing. Like I, I think he's good at like making things feel like characters are moving and like something dynamic is happening just by the way he poses the characters and he lays out the composition. So I never felt like things were stiff. I always felt like the characters, you know, they felt like uh, there was energy in the pages and they felt they felt like there was momentum. Like things were alive and happening. To that point, um, like talking about the ways that 
like Bakuman is sort of like imprinted on my, you know, my my teenage brain. Going back to it for this, just like refreshing for this podcast, I realized that like when I like have an imaginary conversation with myself or I'm imagining like an argument, like it looks like Bakuman, like it looks like Obad is like paneling it out and like all that sort of that that sort of dramatic ebb and flow and that that energy that he has. Yeah, I mean, I think it says something about Bakuman that like, uh, no matter how much we disagree with most of the content, I feel like we all have to agree that like it really takes uh, a lot of talent to basically make a series like Bakuman visually interesting because a lot of the time it is just talking people st- standing around talking about yeah. you know their manga and stuff and like even though it's mostly just that like Obata is great at. Um, he's like his composition is always interesting enough to where like e- even even with how like text heavy the series can be unfortunately which is a problem that we also kind of have with Death Note like his composition is is always still interesting enough to where like it never completely loses my interest like it's still always it's still always like interesting to look at. Yeah, it takes an incredible amount of talent and skill to make the mundane and ordinary exciting. And I think Obata is consistently good with that in depicting, like, this is supposed to be a realistic setting, you know, characters can't do, like, these crazy things, but, like, you always feel like, oh my god, this is just the way, like, the characters talk to each other and they get excited with each other. Like, even doing simple things like having characters talk while they're on their bicycles and, like, showing, like, some energy and momentum that way. Like, he knows how to employ tricks to stage things in a way that makes them really inciting, even if what the characters are talking about, you know, there's a lot of exposition and dialogue and they have to go through a lot of minutia, but it's incredibly readable because the flow of the art is just so good in that sense i think he really emulates the energy of shonen comics really well because he really captures that kind of kinetic energy of of you know shonen battle comics um even though this is a comic about making comics you know there, there's a lot of energy and animation to the characters they're they're not just like talking heads on a page even though they are talking heads on a page in a lot of places <laughs> but uh, it, 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 you see what i'm saying like he it, in that sense in the sense of of how these characters are presented it really does feel like a shonen jump comic so you know i think it's successful in that regard at least yeah and I mean, again, I think that was always part of its appeal and what it drew so many people to it was that, you know, it was as exciting to read as a chapter of One Piece and Naruto back in the day. And even mm-hmm. though people, characters weren't punching each other or like usually or, or like getting into like crazy stunts. Yeah, yeah, every now and again it does happen. But even though the characters weren't usually going to crazy stunts and most of the chapter was just conversations, like it just felt exciting to read because of the the variety of ways that Oba uh, could make and Obata could make these conversations interesting through the art and i think that is a real testament to Obata's skill in particular as an artist and you know why i really really respect him as an artist and what he's capable of i mean yeah like i said is uh like we we can we can all agree once again that bakuman's actual content may not be the most uh uh agreeable i guess that's the word i, can, I guess i'm going to use um the the presentation of the series is always like on point and it, i think is always very good the way i look at this 
Bakuman is a problematic fave. So yeah, like, yeah. And, and you know, I can't I can't fault anyone for for liking Bakuman. But here's the thing about problematic favorites: you can like problematic favorites, but you got to acknowledge their problematic aspects. You can't just defend and 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 toss them aside. And as long as you're willing to do that, then yeah, who cares? You know, whatever. Yeah, yeah. exactly. You can't just justify and excuse all the problems. You need to acknowledge them and address that they need to be improved on and should be challenged, but you can still enjoy what you enjoy about the work. Exactly. I mean, even besides what? Bakuman, I know that a, well, there's plenty of other manga that I like. Heck, every manga that I like has something problematic in it. Like Dragon Ball? Come on. In Chapters 3, Bulma lifts up her skirt and Master Roshi sees an underage girl naked. Come on. You know, that's problematic. That's It's not... It's supposed to be funny, but, you know, it's something to challenge and criticize. But, uh, you know, I can still enjoy Dragon Ball as a whole, even though acknowledging those problems. See, see, at the same time, though, I almost admire Toriyama for that because he still he still used that to move the story along, which I think in and of itself is uh, amazing. Almost Toriyama is just great like that. I don't know how he does it, (laughs) Uh, but I I do agree that, yeah, it's it's still pretty. um, pretty pretty questionable but anyway um yeah i I agree like i struggle to think of of a series in general that doesn't have at least one problematic element that i could that i could think of slam dunk yeah i I mean i guess that's true i can't really i can't really think of anything from slam dunk in particular that i really had a problem with i I guess it's just perfect (laughs) yeah i agree (laughs) to me i can never like quite I never really like it when it's as simple as, you know, like, oh, problematic thing, point it out, criticize it, move on. Uh, like, I think that things that are problematic are, are often so, it's often so indicative of just like what's down in a person's gut. And that's usually what I want to see in art. So it's like always like a, there, there's a, there's a natural wrestle where like, I don't want, I don't want the bullshit polished out a lot of the time. Like sometimes I actually just want to know what the person thinks and feels, even if it's bullshit. Well, I mean, in my- I kind of want Oba to reconsider his thoughts on women and how he writes them, though. And like it's, it's. I think it kind of it it kind of goes to that the other problem of like there being a lot of mixed messages in Bakuman. Um, like I think I I think that like obviously obviously Oba has like legit issues with women. Like that like that that stuff is coming from him, I believe. Um, I don't think it goes completely unrustled with in the story. Like you can have in like chapter two is like, just like so shocking and weird and gross. And, but then it's also like, Oh, but you know, like that's a conversation between two boys. And then the second that there's another person in the room, it's suddenly like the things they're saying don't sound nearly as cool. There is at least like one moment where you have one character telling Takagi, Oh, you are terrible at writing women. Go talk to a woman and figure that out. Uh, and, and and the whole like Aoki and Nakai thing, like there's definitely an emphasis on when when Nakai is portrayed as sympathetic, like it's it's so it's such a strong point to the ways in which he's also very manipulative. You know, like you he can lure you into feeling sorry for him and then he'll just like take advantage of that. Yeah. But I feel they don't adequately point that out. And enough. yeah, that's true. And then that that then goes to what is simultaneously one of Bakuman's like strengths and weaknesses, which is I do not think that it is, you know, I don't think of it as like an essay that has a thesis statement that it's trying to support. It's, it's basically just all brain vomit. It's just like the, <laughs> the, the excitement of like, 
I'm having a thought and it's the most important thing I've ever thought in the world. I'm going to write it down and then you write it down and then the adrenaline comes down, but you send it off to get published anyway, um, which is such a like, I think that's where so much of the energy comes from. And that's also where some of the ickiness also comes from. You know, we keep bringing up mixed messages and it just makes me think about uh, the moment I tweeted in my thread about how uh, at one of the New Year's parties, uh, Iwasi and Aoki uh, arrive and uh, Fukuda makes a comment and uh, Yujiro, like, you know, calls him out on it and says it's sexist when it's really not even that bad of a comment. First off, <laughs> Oba said worse. not the worst thing Fukuda has said about a woman eater. Yeah, and also there's some level of irony to ha- to having a character written by Oba calling out another character written by Oba yeah. for his sexism. It's it's really weird. Somebody has definitely called Oba out on it, and he is not over it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, probably yeah. I think maybe that'd be a dig at maybe that's a dig at fans then for calling Oba sexist. He's like Fukuda makes like what's supposed to be oh just a joke, and then. Uh, Hattori like calls him, oh, you're sexist. And then maybe that's Oba saying this, oh, you shouldn't take this so seriously. See, I'm hip. I, I know yeah. what my problems are. And then proceeds to not go very far with it. See, I like women too. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's one of those, I don't think that word means what you think it means type of moments. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, but yeah, I guess, um, uh, is there anything else we we want to put out there before we get into like twitter questions i guess uh i guess to wrap up our thoughts on bakemon you know would we recommend the series to anyone today that's i guess that question yeah yeah that's hard i don't know if i could recommend it to anyone unless the only people i could recommend it to are people who are specifically interested in a shonen jump manga about making shonen jump manga if it's a manga about making manga i would point them elsewhere to as nick has uh, mentioned before monthly girls and sake-kun uh, stuff that hasn't been licensed but i wish it were because they're great like blue blazes and kakugaku shikachika i'd point into stuff like that uh Oh, A Drifting Light by Yoshihiro Tatsumi is amazing. Like, that's more of a historical thing, so you wouldn't, like, learn about, like, modern industry. But, like, again, that's a great manga about making manga. So I point him to examples like that. The thing you have to be careful about with drifting with a drifting life is that Tatsumi takes a lot of artistic liberties on how he represents history and stuff. So just, just a disclaimer there. Yeah, but, like, don't, again, kind of like Bakuman, don't take everything presented in it as fact but like right. as a story like i think you can enjoy that you can learn some things from a drifting life you know that that are interesting about like how the the beginnings of the gekika movement just like in very broad struts personally i i wouldn't go out of my way to tell people hey you might not want to read that but like if i if i saw somebody who had interest in reading bakuman you know, I, I wouldn't actively recommend it, but I wouldn't really actively like. Um, I would. I wouldn't actively recommend people not checking it out. Like, you know, if people have interest in it, then you know, I. I don't think there's any harm in them checking it out if they want to. You're a better person than I am. <laughs> <laughs> I would probably preface it with the with the problematic fave comment. Because, um, like, in the world of art about making art, like. There's a lot of different, like none of it makes still to this day, none of it, none of it makes me feel the very specific things that Bakuman makes me feel. And like, that's, it's still so, but also like, I understand that it's like, I don't think it's important at all that people have the experience with Bakuman that I have. 
and and the issues, the the sexism and whatnot, like it does impact how enthusiastic I am talking about it to other people. Um, it's kind of a weird where like I think like I'm still at this point where I'm like just compartmentalizing it instead of like really tackling it head on, and that's just my issues. But um, completely lost track of that. I don't know. Like it's just it's it's it is odd because like it it's so it is a very important manga to me, and I do want to like I, I i love being able to say that but I've, i i'm also like trying to learn to accept that i don't know maybe it's it's time the the, the time frame to really share it with other people is maybe past yeah mm-hmm. yeah i i still value my experiences with bakuman like as a in my formative years but yeah i mean that's different from i can i can accept those and uh, still like be critical of the series and like say you know the series i don't i'm no longer as fond of it as i am anymore but i can look at it at a critical lens and point out you know here are some good things about it that can be appealing to some and then here are some things that make it unappealing to many others nah it's trash i would never <laughs> recommend this comic to anyone um i i, I just i, I... I, I don't see I don't, I don't think the merits of this comic outweigh its problems and mm, you know I think I, that's fair yeah I, I would actively discourage people from reading this comic personally because you know even though there's not a whole lot available the viewpoints and the the perspective that it gives even if it's just limited to Shonen Jump I think it's potentially damaging to especially impressionable readers but I I just I I don't see the value in this comic and and you know even reading the 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 amount that I did for this podcast I it was a struggle it was it was a real effort for me to make it through and you know I would point I I, I agree with with Sid that I, you know I would point people to a drifting life or I'll give it my all tomorrow or I would encourage people to start bringing even a monkey can draw manga back up again and maybe oh, that'd start be amazing maybe start getting that into publishers ears again of fin- you know rescuing that license and finally finishing it and maybe exploring some other avenues for for comics about the comic creative process and it, this isn't necessarily related to the comic the creation process but there's another series called Kingyo used books um, that was part of the the Viz Iki line. That's more about reading comics but it's also about reading comics critically which I think uh, Bakuman really fails at, even though it's it's you know it's about making comics and it's about the process. I feel like a lot of times when they're talking about the actual content of the comics, it's very ethereal and very and not grounded, and they're not actually having a meaningful discussion about it. It's more about well, this is going to be popular. This is going to be not. This isn't going to be what's going to sell. Yeah, they, what's going to sell? Talk about it in those terms. And, yeah. you know, that's that's a very myopic way of looking at it. So, nah, this comic blows. <laughs> Move on. Uh, and I think that's a very valid viewpoint, too. I, I, I can't really blame you for feeling that way, honestly. Yeah, I mean, while I said I would still recommend it to people who want to read a Shonen Jump manga by reading Shonen Jump manga, like, I would probably not recommend it to impress readers of an impressionable age i'd probably recommend it to just utter adults who can like look at the series critically and not like be influenced by its uh values if someone asked me to recommend something about like reading shonen jump manga i'd still or like creating shonen jump manga i'd still point them to nozaki kun instead even though that's not even related <laughs> to shonen jump at all like uh, anyway yeah very very middle of the road 
recommendations, mostly, I would say. Yeah, uh, all over the spectrum here. But I think uh, we can move on to some questions. So let's start off with a question from our good friend, Maxi Bernard. And he asks, uh, Bakuman is full of advice for authors as to what does or doesn't work in a comic book, but how well does it actually listen to its own words? And now uh, I have one right off the bat. Is that very beginning at the series, uh, Hattori is like telling Tagaki, you know, your style is too novelistic. You have too much uh, text, too much exposition. But, uh, you know, Bakuman is a very <laughs> dense, word-heavy series. There's a lot of dialogue, a lot so of text Death on Note. the page. Uh, yeah, but it's even worse than Bakuman because Death Note had a lot of action chapters too, so there it wasn't quite as bad as it is in Bakuman, which again, most chapters are conversation after conversation. Later on in the series, they also tell, uh, they also come to the realization that they need to let the art breed and emphasize quiet moments without text, but even after that point, like, the Bakuman itself is still very text-driven, and there aren't a whole lot of just quiet moments where the art just breeds so uh yeah. it does not follow its advice when it comes to like dialogue and exposition and how much text there should be per chapter and on the page i was gonna say yeah as, as much as i love obata's art in bakuman like it's it's very very rare that the series lets obata's work uh his artwork speak for itself <laughs> well they also have a problem they, they bring up or they grapple with uh, mixing genres and and you know shifting genres from one to another, and this comic has that problem too. Like at some points, it's an actual like technical look at the industry, and then and every other point, it's a sports manga parading as something completely different. And then it becomes a romantic comedy after in many chapters. A super trash romantic comedy. Yeah, it's it's yeah. like it it doesn't <laughs> heed its own advice at any point in the series. It's it's pretty ironic, and I I like I don't think that's an intentional satirical point. I think that's just an oversight that they made. Well, there was the the I I don't know how far you got in your most recent reread, but like the there was a point where like as Mashiro is like trying to stylize his art more and like make it more bold like you see that transition happen in the art in the art of bakuman itself like i, I remember that being a really notable uh example of it if it actually following its own ideas or yeah the the use of screen tones uh he Mashiro comes to the realization that he needs to use less screen tones to let like his art breed and let, make it look less dark i definitely think that was something that i saw in bakuman itself like at certain points like I, oba oba ta, took his took that advice at some point yeah, but I think it's safe to say that, no, yeah, Bakuman really doesn't follow its own advice most of the time, or if at all. Uh, very infrequently, at the very least. Yeah. Corey asks, uh, on a skeleton one to Oba about how six it is Bakuman. Uh, I mean, we kind of addressed this. A sideways uh, nine. Yes. <laughs> I give it, um, I give it two thumbs down. Okay. I'm I'm sorry I'm sorry two two thumbs out of th- out of five on a scale of one one to Oba Obata uh, I can't think of any I can't think of anything that's more sexist than this off the top of my head so it's it's I I think it's all the way at the o- Oba Obata end of the scale <laughs> yeah 
Gabby asks, uh, oh, well, this is also another comment about uh, sexist tropes in series, but also specifically the treatment of Awase, which I had, a, I ranted about earlier in the podcast too. But uh, I mean, what are your guys' thoughts on Awase? Because I laid my uh, disappointment with how she was treated very clearly. Um, I think I might have said it earlier, but I never thought Iwase was an interesting character, and very, really? very, very rarely was I ever, like, um, I guess invested in her rivalry with Takagi. I, I just, I just didn't care about her at all. I just, but, but, like, Nakai I hated for what he represented, but Iwase I, I dislike on, on a different level as far as, like, just like how interesting her character is because i just i just didn't think like honestly when when she sometimes like most of the time i didn't think she was interesting but there were also other times where i just like i like i know we talked about earlier how like the series seems to really like glorify you know certain extremes like you know we were talking about how like the characters in the series really idolize azuki for being this like you know this really shy quiet like uh girl who doesn't really like you know go against anybody she just kind of does whatever Wh- or whereas iwase is very uh driven and competitive and um so that's most what of the i liked char- about her well I'm, I'm i'm saying that they they like they do, like the characters themselves don't like that about her which yeah. i don't think which that's i don't think another is another part i think what made me endeared to her is because like the series itself was against her and i was like oh man now i like i root for you because even your author is against you <laughs> and that's fair but my problem is that her personality is so extreme that like to me she's unlikable like, because yeah, I mean, the, there are times where, like... Not Amine is also really shitty and unlikable, but, like, I like him as an antagonist, and I kind of like the Waze at her most unlikable in that same vein. Like, even though she was gonna do horror, she was, like, tr- like so petty, like, she was gonna try and ruin Oski's career because she turned down the role to play the heroine of uh, Plus Natural. Like, even... Though, even stuff like that, I thought that was, like, an endearing part of, like, her inta- her role as an antagonistic rival. And she was, like, until Nanamine, she was the only antagonistic rival. So, I kind of did appreciate that aspect of her. Yeah, un- unfortunately, I completely disagree. And I just, honestly, I could have done without her. That's fair. Uh, what about you, Sam? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's definitely, like, Oba finds that kind of smart woman intimidating so he wants to like beat her basically yeah i hate that so much oh man what what about you nick i didn't get that far and i'm kind of glad i didn't so i have no opinion (laughs) yeah i I guess that's true yeah i forgot about that so now this is a good question i think to kind of end off on and this is from j sam f or at animate sam and he asks uh what were your personal best and worst highlights of the series um, I could probably get mine out of the way since I like mentioned them earlier, but um, I think my personal highlight of the series was the point in the story where, uh, where again, Mashiro had to be hospitalized and uh, he still wanted to work on his series. Again, I, I really credit that, even though, again, there are a lot of mixed messages in the portrayal of that particular part of the story. I still credit that part of the series for being really influential on me as a teenager, where from from that point on, 
I definitely never took the manga or just comics I read in general for granted. Like, I've always been super appreciative of the work that goes into these series since that point in the series. And so I have to really credit uh, that part of the story for me being thankful for for the work and time that goes into creating these stories. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think um, and uh, I kept trying to find a place to mention this uh, while we were talking about... uh, the sexism in Bakuman, but uh, I think out of all the sexist parts of the story, uh, the one that really irritated me the most and got under my skin the most was uh, the very was like the very beginning where um, where Mashiro's trying to get the uh, I guess uh, get his parents to uh, get his parents' blessing to become a manga artist, um, and I really hate all that stuff. Where like clearly his mom is against it, and honestly for good reason. Because, you know, obviously Mashiro's uncle died of overwork. And uh, some some characters in the series, rightfully so, you know, try to make sure that he takes care of himself that he does so that he doesn't end up like his uncle. And I think that's totally understandable, especially coming from his mother. But, you know, his mom is obviously very against it at first. But then, you know, after bringing it up with his father, you know, like... Uh, what what was it? I'm going to bring up this quote because it just... Men have just, dreams that women could never understand or something. Yeah, I think that perfectly encapsulates just every single problem with this series it's, so perfectly that it's not even funny. Like, it's funny. The, the short-lived dub actually changed that line to be about children and adults and not men and women. I think that that's interesting. I think... I think if Oba and Obata went with that, I think that would have been a little more understandable. I think that actually would have been more relatable, almost. But again... That's uh, not what they wrote. I, I, I think that would have been even more condescending to Mashiro's mom than the, the women-men thing. Cause oh, yeah, then, then it's like saying that, she, that she's no. a child and doesn't have the opinions of, a, of an adult. No, like, no, 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 no. She says that dad says that children have dreams that us adults don't understand. And like, oh, so like the, like the I dad, see, see. he's like, oh, I don't understand your dreams, but I'm going to support you as sort of dad's message, I guess. See that, that, that's a little more relatable, I think, but too bad they didn't, uh, too bad that wasn't a part of the original story. But the, like in general, like there are just times where like Mashiro just, I feel like is really disrespectful to his mom for like no reason. And that always really rubbed me the wrong way, like, because cause she's, she's presented as this, like, this nagging mother figure, like, oh, you have to study, and I don't want you to be a manga artist, blah, 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 blah or whatever. I'm the, I'm the typical nagging mother when she has legitimate concern for him wanting to get into an industry that could actually kill you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, she's she's supposed to be a voice of reason, but everyone like treats her as a spoil sport for not that's like, a, letting. That's Mashiro a that's a scene you where understand, mom. That's a scene where I think and then Shiratori's mother is treated the same way when she's introduced later on. I think the only mother depicted positively is Aski's mom, who is still barely a character in the manga. Though, yeah. Um, what were you saying, Sam? I say like I think that's that the the scene with the mom. I think that's a good scene of like Obata's art actually like bringing something that probably wasn't in the text um, that Oba wrote because when she's saying that like you have to look her in the face while she says that like you you know that she doesn't agree with what she's saying and that she's she's just giving up because the men in her life are just being obnoxious. Mm, yeah, I agree. Uh, as much as I don't like that moment, um, Obata's artwork does a great job of depicting the emotion on her face. Yeah, I mean, it's just, I wish, like, 
Oba is writing. Uh, Oba it's another mixed message. Her to have an like, equal I think the voice. sympathy is there. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. No, I, mean, I, I agree. Obata draws her sympathetically, but Oba doesn't value her voice, and that's consistent in the series. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, so I guess for me, my favorite moments, like Colton, uh, I think my absolute favorite was the arc where Mashiro was that entire detective trap arc where they, you know, they were, they had their new series, they were being competitive with Nizuma, tied for him at third, but then, tr- you know, tra- uh, tragedy strikes because Mashiro works, overworks himself, lands up in the hospital, and there's this whole conflict where Mashiro wants to continue working, doesn't want to give up on their dream when they're so close to pursuing, you know, to be, to having a popular series in the magazine, and they know that a hiatus will, like, kill their momentum. And then all their friends, you know, they understand how passionate Mashiro is, so they, you know, uh, try to help him by boycotting and saying, you got to let Mashiro continue. And, you know, as much as I disagree with that, it's like, you know, I think the the emotion and energy in that part of the story was like so compelling and I was really into it. And then in general, a lot of the times when Mashiro and Takaki are directly competing with Nizuma were really, really exciting. Like uh, uh, when they have PCP and, you know, they have this like... Uh, stipulation that if pcp is not as popular as natural and crow if it's not like going toe-to-toe with them in the rankings like they'll be dropped after 25 chapters so you know that part of the story was really really engaging like their their strategy to make pcp like competitive and like they're taking a risk on doing a story arc uh betting it all on like the last chapter of the arc to like pushed them up in the upper echelons of the rankings that was that was really good uh i I was not able to like fully reread this part of the story but you know when nizuma is like saying like oh i'm gonna cancel my series like i made this uh i I made them promise me that uh if i became the number one artist in jump they'll let me cancel any series i choose and i want to cancel my series so i can go on and do a new thing and then everyone's like no we haven't beaten you up we're not gonna let you end it like this and so they're competing with him to try and be better to him so that Nizuma will not end his series but you know Nizuma does ultimately stay on top and get to end the series and that part was really good uh yeah in general every part that involved Nizuma and competing with Nizuma uh was really good outside of like the hospital storyline um and then the worst parts, uh, I mean, we kind of like anything that had like such awful sexism and, and like focus on the Asuki Mashiro romance were just terrible. Nakai parts were always terrible. Uh, Awaze, everyone like shitting on Awaze and she trying to commit suicide. That was awful. Uh, I mean, a lot of the part, oh, like, uh, the, the part, the whole stupid misunderstanding between Miyoshi and Takaki where like Awase they Awase gave Takaki her book and she had a, like a letter to him in the book and Miyoshi misinterpreted it as like Takaki was cheating on her and then there was this whole thing where they like Takaki and Mashiro don't want to just like tell them the truth for like no for like no good reason like they don't want Asuki to know that Takaki was talking to Okiko and Okiko based like her manga off of Mashiro and Asuki's romance and so they they keep that under rats but they make it worse because they if they just explained that that would solve the entire situation and they're like oh no they should apologize to us for not being trusting us and I'm like no just tell them the truth you are in the wrong gear for keeping secrets what the hell 
Uh, and then, of course, that all resolving with, you know, uh, Takaki proposing to Miyoshi under the, like, the stupid logic that, oh, if you're married to me, uh, I'll always be together with you and you won't have to worry about me cheating on you. Even though that was, again, like I mentioned, they were already doing that. She was always already around Takaki. They were always, always spending time together. That doesn't make any sense. Uh, that, that part was really stupid. Um, and then, in terms of a boring part, like, the stuff where, uh, with Shiratori, like, you know, his whole deal with his mom not wanting to let him be a manga artist because, like, she, she thought manga was low art and he need to, he needed to, like, study painting in Paris or whatever, you know. That, that whole part was, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't dislike the character Shiratori, but that part of the story I did not care about as, and I didn't like necessarily care about like the whole, like, uh, the, the competition, the love fest competition where all the mangaka were like making, uh, romance one shots and they're competing each other with that. Like, cause again, Oba's views on romance manga, what makes a good romance manga, were kind of terrible. The only part about that, I, I, that part of the story I liked is that Okiko won that contest between them. And she did it with a story that she was happy with without having to make like stupid concessions like fan service. So that was the only part of that I, I liked about, really. I felt that was kind of like a fillery kind of thing that was like, you know, uh, we have this arc with competition with Nizuma with PCP. Now PCP successful. And then that part, and then the story drags until Nanamine shows up and then Nanamine is good. Oh, but I guess the second Nanamine arc, I didn't care about that much. Like it was a repeat of the first pretty much. I, I didn't think it had much value. I honestly didn't really think there was a reason for him to come back. Yeah, like- exactly. <laughs> like... I I feel like Oba wanted to say something about like oh here's these here are these old authors who want to make it into jump but you know they're so old so no one would take them seriously but now they but thanks Nanamine is helping them come up with these like really uh, engaging stories through like his processes or whatever but then so I think like he wanted to do a story about like you know hey even these old mangaka can still make stuff for Shonen Jump too you know I think he might have had. He might. I feel like Oba was changing his mind about what he wanted to do with characters throughout the series. I think that was something he, a story he wanted to tell with Nakai. Then he made Nakai so unlikable he couldn't do that. So in the end, he made this new. He made these new characters. He engineered this new situation to tell this kind of story. But I didn't. Uh, uh, it was like a Hatori focused arc, and I like generally like Hatori, so I I, I sort of enjoy those parts. But all the non-Amini parts were just a repeat, and I didn't think like there was a reason to bring him back uh but yeah i i guess i went on a little long about that but still yeah yes yeah, so save, save, save some save some moments for us Sid. <laughs> well you already went so. <laughs> but uh, I, i'm sorry for sure changing sam here uh colton you tweeted a, a scene which was that conversation between uh the, that conversation about you know commercial versus personal art yeah uh, yeah like I wasn't there, like, on, on my skimming through and catching up, like, I wasn't there yet, but, like, I saw you post that, and I and just, like, immediately clicked in my head, like, oh, my God. Like, <laughs> that, that's, like, been in me for years now. I think it's a good moment. Yeah. Yeah, it really left, and, and all the, all the instances, all the themes or, or instances in which, you know, like, I like how gimmick and cliche are not dirty words, uh, in these like conversations that they're having. I like, I like that there's like a real reverence for, uh, the kind of the, the shonen, like, I guess, template and, and cliches and whatnot. It's very encouraged. And I think that's like the, the way they go about that is 
actually one of the few refreshing things about the series, in my opinion. Yeah. yeah, they treat them as like tools that are necessary for an author to employ sometimes, you know, because keeping their series afloat is a matter of survival and, and, you know, it's important for their career. And so, you know, it's something that you have to think about if you want to be successful, manga artist. Um, and then worst moments, uh, chapter two is pretty bad. Yeah. Uh, the ending just kind of loses all of its energy for me. Yep. Yeah. And and like most of the romance stuff in general, like I I basically just skip on rereads. <laughs> That's totally fair. Yeah. What 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 about you, Nick? What's oh, what's your boy. favorite moment in Pokemon? I think we know what your I think we know what your worst parts are. But like, was there anything in Pokemon that you liked? Anything? Genuinely, Miyoshi was my favorite character, um, and I I hate that I come to accept that because of how poorly Miyoshi is treated in this series like she she's an example of how they could succeed with a really strong female character if they even gave her an ounce of agency and you know these little moments she has were you know these these little bubbles of clarity I thought were were the strong points uh, in the series that uh, where I got but in, in general the discussions they have with uh, Akira Hattori, um, I think, were the strongest parts of the series because the way they present him and his, his pragmatism and his perspective are all really cool and especially unique for a Shonen Jump title. So I, I thought that he actually had some valuable insight in like his his moments where he's talking with them and kind of influencing them and directing them. I thought those were were actually some redeemable some redeemable qualities in the comic, um, but as far as the worst is concerned, oh no, no no no, let me go back to favorites. Otter number eleven, because every time Otter number eleven came up, I was like, why can't I be reading that comic instead of Bakuman? I would. I think they made actually made a one shot for it. Oh, for real? Yeah, they they did, and um, they they made a one shot for it, and then a uh, Viz even actually published it uh, in one of their like weekly show to jump uh, like yearbook things bonuses that comes with like their uh, their digital jump subscription. Though I th- I think at the time they were still called like Show to Jump Alpha. They 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 did do like a digital version of it, which thankfully I own. Um, I I, me- I meant to read the uh, Otter Eleven one shot again for the podcast but i didn't get a chance to because i i had read it when um when it was scanned originally but uh, i actually still haven't i haven't read i haven't read the official version yet so i actually kind of want to go and check that out uh but as far as the worst moments in this comic um the typesetting in the english volumes what was going on with that like it's like they were rolling a die to decide what alignment the ty- the the text was going to appear in in the word bubbles. Like, what happened there? I think I think I think I might know what you're talking about because there are some points where like, and granted, uh, I didn't I didn't feel like there were a lot of them, but I did notice sometimes where like uh, sometimes like the text would be like way too small for certain word bubbles and stuff. It, the the alignment was a problem. It, it's like almost on every page of every volume. It's crazy. So I I don't know what happened there, but that was like that was something I fixated on because that's just something I noticed because I'm crazy. But uh, I, I I don't know. The, this comic it just it 
all the romance stuff was so contrived and so awful and gave me bad flashbacks of eyes that I just didn't <laughs> want to remember. And, uh, you know, the, the dynamics between, uh, the, the, all the dynamics between Mishiro and Azuki, like, or not, not Azuki, Takagi, like they're, they're just, they're forgettable characters. Pretty much the entire cast of this comic is forgettable. Even Hiromaru and Eiji? Yeah, even even Hiromaru and Eiji. Like, Eiji, I guess he's memorable in the sense that he's eccentric, but, you know, that's his one character trait. I, I like the fact that they didn't make him an outright villain, at least as far as I got. But, I, I don't know. The, the second I move past Bakuman, I'm not really going to remember any of these characters and and you know it's it's they're all cookie cutter stereotypes and it's just i they're they're unremarkable i think that's fair yeah i i could i could go on and on and on about the things i dislike but i'll just say that as a whole i think the entire comic i disliked I think the character, a lot of the characters are memorable, but not all of them for good reasons. Again, like Nakai and Awaze, like when I, and I, okay, come on, I remember them because I remember being frustrated with how they were handled or like just their character in general. I hated, uh, and then, but yeah, Mashiro and Takaki, like as protagonists, like when I was, a, you know, when I was a teen, I was reading them and, you know, I could like. Being, I was invested in them because here were kids my age, and uh, this was a story about them like making a big and jump, and so I was invested in them on that level. But like as characters, as people, and like what they believe in and like what they want, I I'm not I, like now that I read it, I I cannot find Mashiro relatable at all outside of like you know his dedication to improving his art, which like is still like oh man, I look at it, and I'm like man, that is that that's effort. But, and Takaki, you know, uh, the, the amount of effort he puts in the story. It's like, I, I respect their work ethic, but I don't care about them, like, their characterization at all. I don't find them distinct compared to other, you know, protagonists of their nature in shonen manga. To illustrate my point, I've had to keep a copy of, of one of the volumes on hand. Because when, when you guys have started to talk about characters, I seriously have to go to the character introduction page at the beginning of the volume <laughs> in order to remember who exactly you're talking about. Because e even though I did kind of a close reading of this comic, I still had no idea who ever, all the characters were. So that, that's just a, a way to punctuate what I was talking about. Um, but I think that's it for Twitter questions then. Yeah. I don't. I guess that's the end of our discussion. I mean, I think we covered a lot of bases. This is another characteristically long episode uh, of the Manga Mavericks podcast. Uh, see, I'm 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 okay with the length of the discussion for this one because I feel like we really covered a lot of. Uh, I think we covered a lot of ground, and I don't think any of it was wasted. Yeah, I think it's important yeah. to touch all the bases and address as much as possible. So I think we did a good job at that. Uh, I guess one last thing that I forgot I wanted to mention that I didn't have a chance to sneak it in. I hope they license the Bakuman live action movie at some point because if I want to recommend someone to experience Bakuman or like if someone wants to experience Bakuman, I would just point into that live action movie because it does away with pretty much all the sexism problems and it gives really? Azuki much more agency. Like Azuki dumps Mashiro in that movie because he overworks himself. Like she doesn't wow. encourage him. And yeah, they don't get back together either. 
So, huh. you know, it's a it's a lot more harsh and real in that sense. And uh, I think it depicts things more realistically, which, you know, it's in live action. So it it has the benefit of being able to do that, too. So I actually like the Bakuman movie more than the manga in terms of like taking what's great from the manga and like doing away with all the the shitty parts. So I hope uh, that movie gets licensed at some It's been like three four years, so probably not. But I remember I watched that and I was like really impressed with it. I was like, wow, uh, I wish I wish this I wish they could make more of these movies. So I wouldn't have to read the manga, maybe <laughs> to experience the story, the best parts of the story. That sounds really interesting. I'm going to have to seek that out or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, yeah, I, I think we had a really good discussion this time around, and I really enjoyed myself. Uh, thank you guys so much for uh, for coming on. Uh, this was really fun. Yeah, it was a good talk. Yeah, thanks for thanks for inviting me. <laughs> We're sorry for making you read Bakuman, though. That's okay. I have a volume of descending stories I've been waiting to cleanse my palate for after this discussion. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. That that's honestly that's a really good choice. Um, yeah, Nick, I pro- I promise next time we have you on the show, it'll be for a series that you actually like. <laughs> I, I I don't like. I feel bad coming on to just dunk a series because like, you know the I I think the the reason for discussions like this is to kind of discuss series critically, but and we did that extensively. But I I just I I re- do my best to try and talk about some positives alongside the negatives and i can't do that with this one so much and and i you know i feel bad being the you know harumphing guy on on this episode so but thank you for indulging me it's okay i i think i think we i think we covered the positives well enough um mm-hmm. i mean like i like that that's part of the reason we wanted to have you on was because i think we we needed i think we really needed somebody with those stronger viewpoints because i mean like bakuman is obviously as we've talked about for three hours it is not perfect um and i mean it like i hate i hate to say it like this but i think like certain parts of the series deserve to be called out on Mm -hmm. um but uh yeah uh like i said thanks thank you guys for coming on i guess we can start uh plugging away at our stuff so uh sam where can the good people find you uh, they can find me on Twitter at Lucky Chainsaw. They can find me on the One Piece podcast every week doing the anime recaps. And they can find me on AnimeNewsNetwork.com doing the daily streaming reviews for One Piece, My Hero Academia, and Black Clover. All right. Yeah, definitely go follow uh, Sam and all of his stuff. Definitely go listen to him on the One Piece podcast. Uh, he's a great guy in general. Uh, Nick, do you have anything you want to plug? Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at SPD4649 uh, if you like hearing random rants and hearing about Fist of the North Star and fighting games and stuff. Uh, you can find me on the Totally Whelm podcast, which is on SoundCloud and on iTunes. Um, I'd recommend starting with episode like 52 because we just changed our format to talk about you know specific books instead of just kind of the topics of the week. Um, and I'm an occasional contributor to All Comic as well. Um, I need to be more on top of that, but you know, you can find my find my stuff on there. Yeah, definitely go follow Nick as well. Uh, but yeah, Sid, what about you? You can find me as at Lone Romayasha on Twitter, 
and on Annie List and Animation Revelation <laughs> under that name. Basically, anywhere there's a Lone Ramayasha, I'll be there. You can read my manga reviews on all-comic.com. I write monthly reviews for Dragon Ball Super. Did some movie reviews uh, recently before the Sailor Moon movies. Definitely plan to keep writing on a consistent rate. Uh, Nick is my editor for all the stuff I write for all-comic.com, and he does a great job on that as well. So, yeah, definitely give those a read. All right. Uh, yeah, definitely go follow all Sid's stuff, too. Be sure to look forward to his reviews. Um, but as for me, I'm Colton. You can uh, find me on Twitter at SniperKing323. Um, occasionally tweeting whatever I'm thinking. I usually tweet about the manga and comics I read. Um, and then uh, I have a few other podcasts, such as Life Lessons, the Gintama Manga Cast, uh, which is on a bit of a hiatus at the moment, but you can still listen to all of our backlog over at gintalifelessons.wordpress.com. You can also listen to One Podcast Prevails at onepodcastprevails.com. Basically, the same kind of show, except we uh, talk about Detective Conan or Case Close as through the uh, Viz Media release. Uh, we talk about a couple of chapters or so every episode. Um, I really enjoy uh, recording that. Uh, so uh, you should definitely go listen to that if you're a, if you're a fan of Detective Conan. Uh, but as for the podcast and all comic in general, uh, you can find every episode of our podcast over at all-comic.com. Again, that's where we post every episode first. You can also follow us on facebook.com slash all.comic or on twitter.com slash allcomic underscore. Uh, you can also follow Manga Mavericks specifically on Twitter at manga underscore Mavericks. That's where we... Uh, post updates on the podcast first it's where you get the quickest updates anyway as well as on manga mavericks.tumblr.com uh you should also subscribe to us on our youtube channel at youtube.com slash manga mavericks uh at the time of this recording we are uh less than 10 subscribers away from 200 subscribers so yeah we only need three subscribers at the time of this recording so uh, oh wow okay so ho- hopefully we can hopefully we can uh maybe uh, get to 200 before the episode's out i don't know it's yeah, possible and if we do uh, we'll do another special live stream all right so uh, if you want to see us do a special live stream uh please go subscribe to to our youtube channel if you haven't it's where we uh post excerpts of our podcast and whatnot uh i'm sure our bakuman discussion will be up there eventually um what do you think about bakuman and uh, other works from Oba and Obata. Um, and, uh, you know, just like, what are you reading right now? What do you think about the podcast in general? You can email us anything about those topics at mangamavericks at gmail.com, and we will be sure to read your emails on the show. So uh, we, we like it when we get emails, so uh, you should send us those. Uh, but the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, whatever you call it. Uh, it really helps the visibility of our show, so uh, definitely go do that uh, if you so wish to. But uh, I think that's going to be about it for the show. Again, really great discussion uh, this time around. And again, special thanks to uh, Sam and Nick for coming on. And uh, yeah, this has been episode 57 of our podcast. And we will see you guys next time on episode 58. Bye, guys. Sayonara. See ya. Should I stop recording? Stop recording.